Oh, come on. I just want some hot cocoa. <sighs> this thing hasn't worked since before Christmas, and nobody put in a maintenance request. <sighs> Maybe Jimmy can fix it. Singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. Dr. Nico Tatopoulos, I presume. Hmm, call me Nick. I see my reputation precedes me. That and your show tunes. <laughs> Is your favorite the producers? Very funny. I get it. I look like Matthew Broderick. You and Zilla will never live that movie down. Anyway. It's hard for people to not know who you are when you're the leader of the Humanitarian Environmental Analysis Team. <sighs> Ever since Randy came up with that name, he's been trying to come up with some catchy slogan to go along with it. Stuff like, feel the heat. I told him to stick with the computers. Well, I think it's funny, but I'm sure you don't want to talk about puntastic PR campaigns. No. I came here because the team and I heard through the grapevine that Jet Jagger had returned last night. And he's made, had a makeover. You could say that. Goro Rokuro Obuki copied his CPU into a new body that looks like his original, but it's a bit shinier and supposedly has some improvements? Good. I never care for those singular points enhancements. I'll miss the Spear of Angerus, though. Monique agrees with you. She thought it would be a huge advantage in a kaiju fight. Of course, the BA French secret agent would think that. Now, what's in the manila envelope you got there? It's a little something you can give Jet when he comes in for his next broadcast. It's a microchip Mendel took out of Nigel after our last run-in with a dinosaur on our last excursion. That poor robot has it worse than Kenny from South Park. We hear that a lot. Anyway... Mendel says it should give Jet a 5-10% to 10 performance boost. How's that work? Don't ask me. I'm not the roboticist on heat. All I care about is if the tech works. Speaking of robotics and tech, our new boss. Uh, don't get me started. We have history. I know. How far back? College. That a-hole was my roommate. Talk about keeping your enemies close. He was constantly trying to stage me in all of our classes. I always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. Now he thinks he's the richest, too. It was never about the science with him. Only money. Hence why he started calling you Nichols. That happened after my failed class project we worked on. But like your producer is fond of saying, I'd rather not talk about it. Sadly, very few people appreciate the countless lives you and Heat have saved. <laughs> Heck, you guys even helped stop an alien invasion. Well, Godzilla deserves more of the credit for that. <laughs> you still have Raymond Martin fighting Toho Legal over that? Is Cameron Winter a crony capitalist? <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> it's nothing compared to our run-ins with winners. Trust me, I know. The episodes of the cartoon series that dramatize those events will be a bonus episode on my show in a few months. Was that Winner's idea? Yep. Of course. Maybe I should tell. <coughs> Let me guess. Winter's calling. Yeah. It's 
It's one of those days I wish my number wasn't in the island employee records. Let me put him on speaker. Hello, Mr. Winner. Hello, Marshland. I just wanted to call and say I'm looking forward to hearing your season premiere today. Thanks, sir. In fact, I'll be listening while supervising the examination of the island's newest resonance. Nichols and his team just brought in a few dinosaurs from the fabled Amazonian Plateau featured in the film you're discussing today. I must say, I'm impressed they caught them before Jurassic Park did. I hear they're hurting for some new attractions. Shut up, winner. I don't need your slimy flattery. Oh, Nichols! What a pleasant surprise to hear your voice. I didn't know you and our resident film curator were friends. We've been chatting a bit more since you've been in charge. Now I'm sure he's been telling you about our good old days. Right, Nichols? If you're talking about all those times I tried to send you in jail, then sure. It's amazing what a lack of evidence the best lawyers in the country can do. Speaking of which, I still need to chat with Mr. Martin at the Legal Action Team office. And when you're done there, go confess your crimes to Reverend Mifune at the chapel. You're assuming I have anything to confess. You always do. <laughs> Whatever helps you sleep at night, Nichols. Anyway, break a leg on the air today, Marchland. Not literally, of course. Although I am providing all employees with new superior health insurance. Can't be too careful working around Kaiju these days. Take care, gentlemen. Oh, good Godzilla. He's like Lex Luthor if he was played by James Spader. He's insufferable. It makes me wish that Heat wasn't bound by contract to bring in the kaiju we find to any of the Monster Island sites. Nothing we can do about it at the moment. Anyway, I have a broadcast in 15 minutes. Tell Elsie and the rest of the crew I said hi. I will. Now, if I could... Just get this thing to make my cocoa! Hold on. Da -da -da -da. It might help if you turn it on. Oh. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara. This is The Monster Island Film Vault, episode 56, The Omniviewer versus The Lost World 1925. Hello, Kaiju Lovers, and welcome to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, Nathan March, and the film curator here on Monster Island. Indeed, Jimmy, it's a new year and a new series here on the Monster Island Film Vault. And not only that, but one of our old friends has finally come back. Hi, Jet. How's it going? I understood maybe about a quarter of that. Can you translate, Jimmy? Ah, okay. He says he's doing well. Okay. I see you've got a new look there, Jet. Yes, I think I understood what you said right there. But basically, folks, what happened was Jet went back home for the holidays to visit Goro and Rokuro. And apparently while he was there, he decided that despite all of the singular point modifications he had been making to himself, that he wanted to go back to his old body. So 
they made Jet a new body and then copied over his CPU into that. It looks remarkably like his original body, but he insists that there's some upgrades to it. He just prefers the old-fashioned aesthetics, I suppose. So does that mean that there are now two of you running around yet? From what I can gather, that's a yes. All righty then. I'm not sure the world is ready to have two Jet Jaguars, but there are now two Jet Jaguars. Now, all of that to say, as I mentioned, we have a new series going on here, but before we get into talking about that, I need to introduce my first guest, or should it be guest? It probably should be guest, I think, technically, <laughs> for this series. He is a YouTuber, an author, an actor, and internet renaissance man. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am the Omni Viewer, back once again to talk some kaiju stuff. <laughs> and let's not forget me, Snazzy Chapeau, his dashingly handsome assistant. Yeah, you're not the only one with a quote-unquote dashingly handsome assistant. Oh, I could beat that any day. Oh, great. Just what we need, <laughs> a sidekick fight, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Ryan, the Omniviewer Collins, making his second appearance here on the Monster Island Film Vault. It's been a little while, has a lot's happened <laughs> since you oh, were here yeah. last. Because the last time you were here was actually last spring. I had mm -hmm. you and Brandon Jacobs from Up From The Depths on to talk about Godzilla King of the Monsters from 2019 in anticipation of Godzilla vs. Kong, which every kaiju content creator in the world was waiting anxiously for, and we finally got it. <laughs> to this yeah. day, it, that actually remains one of my most popular episodes. So thank you very okay. much for that. <laughs> huh. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So before I get into what you know, uh, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, what brings you here to the island? <laughs> well, we were actually heading for Latitude Zero as part of another series of videos we'll be working on soon, but wrong turn was made. We wound up here instead, decided to stick around for a while. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, good luck finding Latitude Zero. There's still quite a bit of doubt as to whether or not Latitude Zero is even real. Let me tell well, you. I did an episode on it. So, What was that? Well, we at least know one way to pinpoint it. Oh, yes, that is true. Very, very true. So, sounds a, a little simpler and a bit less harrowing compared to the, how you got here last mm. time. <laughs> so the guy on the ship that we were sailing on did look a bit like Cesar Romero, so mm. we might be on the right track. Yeah, the one of my uh, recently outed bosses looked a bit like Cesar Romero as well. So, hmm, a little strange there. Hmm. Hmm. I think he's trying to find Latitude Zero too. You know, maybe you can go visit them in the quote-unquote boardroom at the top of the mountain and exchange notes or something. I don't see how that could go wrong at all. Oh no! Just keep aware. Just keep in mind, supervillain. Anyway, <laughs> but. Today, uh, like I said, season premiere, season three. It's so weird for me to think that I've been doing this for over two years now, and now we're on to season three. <laughs> it's so insane. I know you've been yeah. at this game a bit longer than I have, but you know, I'm sure <laughs> that sets in a little bit for you, too. Oh, yeah. But recently decided I'm going to slightly alter my look for the year to come because... 
the traditional Omni shirt's getting a little worn <laughs> after almost a decade. Oh, a decade. Now, I mean, woof. <laughs> oh, st- stop it, Jimmy, okay? <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> I think I think you're just jealous of his hat. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone would be. <laughs> Everyone should be. <laughs> Uh, and you, uh, Snazzy, I didn't realize Snazzy has a little hat there, too. That's impressive. It is literally the name. <laughs> this is true. So, like I said, we're starting a brand new series here on The Film Vault. America, 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 America. America, I do. Yep, we will be covering uh, this year in 2022 the best and most infamous <laughs> of kaiju movies made in my home country of the United States because, I mean, Japan is the undisputed king of kaiju film production, but that isn't to say that there haven't been some other countries that have, well, shall we say, vied for the title. <laughs> and the United <laughs> States was one of them, although... Since I've already covered all of the Kong films, those won't be those will not be part of this series. But this is everything that's well, not everything, but this is going to be what anything but Kong at this point. So, including uh, things that could have been Kong, but yes, <laughs> that's for sure. But we're starting off with quite possibly. I mean, I think I said this about Kong thirty three way back in as. Luke Jackanetti would say the hallowed antiquity of (laughs) episode two of the show, the granddaddy of all kaiju films being Kong 33. But this actually would, I think this is the granddaddy of King Kong. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's also quite possibly going to be one of the most MIFV of MIFV episodes because we're going to be talking about a classic film and a bit of classic literature and some crazy history to go along with it. Just you wait, folks. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be talking about The Lost World 1925. And I have to say 1925 because this thing has been remade and readapted multiple times. But this is the first film adaptation of a 1912 novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is actually best known, much to his chagrin, I'm sure, (laughs) for Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) but he wrote a lot of other things, including this little book about an expedition to a undiscovered plateau where there are dinosaurs. So, (laughs) but uh, basically the other thing he's known for it's Sherlock Holmes and the lost world. And then you have to start digging to find people who know anything else by him. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little unfortunate, but We'll get into that a little bit more as the episode goes on. As for the Toku topic, as I've been hinting at it, we'll be talking about The Bone Wars, which I know sounds like the title of a young adult novel series or something, but (laughs) it is an actual historical event, and it is wild, to say the least. (laughs) But I would almost argue that without The Bone Wars, we probably wouldn't have gotten The Lost World and then we wouldn't have had King Kong and everything else. So <laughs> you want to talk yeah. about standing on the shoulders of giants, including the crazy ones. 
<laughs> we'll Almost get into that crazy to a degree <laughs> this is true this is very true but before we get into all of that mr the viewer <laughs> mr omni whichever you prefer and snazzy i even though i'm no longer contractually obligated to do it it's mifv tradition now so i will be reading jimmy's entertaining info dump to get us all up to speed on this film Edward Malone is a timid and lovesick reporter who, in order to earn his fiancée's admiration, joins an expedition to the Amazon to find a missing scientist and prove a paleontologist's wild claims. Said scientist is the gruff and foul-tempered Professor George Challenger, who claims he's discovered a plateau inhabited by dinosaurs and is angered that the scientific community doesn't believe him. Sir John Roxton is an even-keeled and aristocratic hunter who joins the expedition for adventure and to be near the missing scientist's daughter, thereby serving as Malone's romantic rival. The object of their affections, Paula White, is a kind and loving young woman determined to find her missing father on the expedition despite her aversion to adventure. The intelligent and skeptical Professor Summerlee accompanies the explorers as a representative of academia to see if Challenger's claims are true. Challenger's butler Austin and the native servant Zambo serve as bumbling comic relief while waiting for the expedition to return from the plateau, having been cut off from the group after a tree bridge is destroyed. The Ape Man is a primitive, missing link anthropoid who relentlessly stalks the explorers, presumably to protect his territory and mate, but he is shown to be malicious. The various dinosaurs living on the plateau are the Agathumus, Allosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Brontosaurus, Edmontosaurus, aka Trachodon and Anatosaurus, Pteranodon, Stegosaurus, Toxodon, Triceratops, and Tyrannosaurus. They are at various times seen nurturing young, eating, or fighting for survival or territory. The Brontosaurus is confused and scared when taken to London, so it lashes out in fear. The human and kaiju plotlines are at first separate, but they quickly intertwine once the expedition reaches the plateau. Not only are the characters fighting to survive and escape the titular lost world, but their motivations for the journey are closely tied to it. The dangerous dinosaurs inhabiting the plateau are the problem, hindering the protagonist's escape. The ape man throws a massive rock at the explorers, which narrowly misses them. A brontosaurus demolishes the makeshift tree bridge they build, trapping them. They witness several fights between the dinosaurs while on the plateau. The ape man attacks Malone in the trees while he tries to spy a new location to make camp, but the creature is shot by Roxton, falling to the ground and retreating. The brontosaurus falls into a pool of mud while fighting an allosaurus. A volcano erupts, causing a stampede of dinosaurs with several perishing. Jocko the pet monkey carries a rope ladder to the explorers, which they use to climb down the plateau's cliff face, but they are accosted by the ape man. Roxton snipes the brute, killing it. This solves the problem of escaping the plateau. The brontosaurus in the mud is taken to London where it breaks loose, creating a new, albeit short-lived problem. The massive animal wanders London until it comes to Tower Bridge, which crumbles under its weight. It then swims out into the ocean, presumably to return to South America. Screenwriter Marion Fairfax took the simple and straightforward adventure story of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's novel and added a little more complexity with a few additional characters and a love triangle. 
However, the cast spends much of the middle portion of the film watching the dinosaurs. While the special effects by Willis O'Brien and his assistants are crude by modern standards, or even compared to King Kong 1933, they were a spectacle for their time. O'Brien refined his stop motion in this, creating smoother animation than what he'd done before in his short films. Ralph Hameris used the glass shot technique, wherein an environment was painted into a glass paint and shot through with the camera. Rotoscoping was utilized to add actors to the dinosaur shots. The ape-man makeup on wrestler Luigi Bull Montana was surprisingly good. Color tinting was used to create mood in different sequences. The centerpiece is the volcanic eruption, which was painstakingly animated on a gigantic table by O'Brien and his cohorts. The end result, while not as refined as Kong 33, is nothing short of outstanding. This is a relatively light adventure film with a moderate amount of gravitas and a bit of comedy. While a hidden world inhabited by dinosaurs is certainly fantastical, the film leans more towards science fiction. A special effects film on this scale had never been attempted before, and the filmmakers were concerned the effects wouldn't work. So, Fairfax wrote enough drama in her script to keep the characters busy just in case. The success of the film rode on these untested and often cantankerous special effects artists and their never-before-seen craft. This was a revolutionary film of many firsts, including the first feature-length dinosaur movie, the first film to use advanced techniques to combine stop-motion and live-action, the first giant monster on the loose film, and the first feature-length special effects blockbuster. While King Kong inspired generations of filmmakers, The Lost World paved the way for it and has been emulated and remade by everything from Japanese kaiju films to Jurassic Park for nearly 100 years. This was meant to be an entertaining blockbuster for a general audience. The film grossed $1.3 million against its $700,000 budget, $20.6 million and $11 million respectively when adjusted for inflation, when released in the U.S. February 2, 1925. It was a massive blockbuster that, according to many newspapers, was being seen by everyone around the world. It was also a hit with critics at the time, who marveled at the special effects, and was nominated for AFI's Top 10 Fantasy Films and 100 Most Thrilling Films. While its racist portrayal of Zambo is off-putting for modern audiences, it remains popular despite being relegated to a footnote in the story of King Kong 1933. In the early 1930s, a new sound film adaptation of The Lost World was proposed, so Kotoscope cut the originally 106-minute film to 55 minutes and destroyed the original prints as the studio saw it as obsolete. It was a largely lost film until the 1990s when the first of several restorations were made. These included the first George Eastman house restoration for Laserdisc in 1991, 64 minutes, the second George Eastman restoration in 1998, 100 minutes, the David Shepard and Sergei Bromberg restoration for DVD in 2000, 93 minutes, and the almost complete restoration by Flickr Alley in 2017 for Blu-ray, 110 minutes. Each edition was made using newly discovered elements from several sources. The last two included newly composed scores by Robert Israel and the Alloy Orchestra. A full list of differences is beyond the scope of this description. Several forces are at play in this film. The cultural expectations of masculinity conflict with Malone's desire for safety, as seen in his efforts to join the expedition to impress his fiancée Gladys. Challenger is constantly at odds with the disbelieving academia and the scientific community. 
Nature and civilization clash throughout the film, whether that's the explorers facing monsters on the plateau or the brontosaurus trying to navigate the streets of London. Fidelity and obligation are questioned when, on a whim, Malone and Paula decide to get married since they are trapped on the plateau, which complicates a developing love triangle between them and Roxton. Several themes are found in the film. Malone comes of age as he faces the first true test of his manhood, which ends with him marrying Paula after his fickle fiance marries another man. Similarly, adventure is to be sought. Scientific truth is pursued at all costs by the explorers despite academia's doubts. Roxton respects Malone enough to let him have Paula. Explorers learn to put aside their differences in order to band together and survive. The characters all learn that nature can't be fully tamed, but that should never stop one from trying to do so. And with all that, it's time for our first round of Toku Talk in 2022 for Season 3 of MIFV. Well, that was interesting. I see Jimmy had to modify this a little bit because normally that would start with a focus on the monsters, but this time around it's, well, I guess it's about the monsters, but not really. <laughs> hmm. The monsters take a while to actually get there. Uh, but I think about 26 minutes if, uh, I saw that because the ter- the pterodactyl, pteranodon, whichever name you want to use. pterodactyl. Yeah. It's a pteranodon. Yeah. <laughs> there are differences. <laughs> That's the thing. Some people might look at this and think that it's quaint because people have very different views on dinosaurs now. <laughs> Like whether or not Brontosaurus is actually a real dinosaur. Which actually we'll talk a little bit more in the next segment. So <laughs> there's a thing it's with It's real that. in this context. So. <laughs> yeah, it is real in this context. And there are a couple on the island that I saw. So. Mm, yeah, we don't have very many dinosaurs. A Jurassic Park, our competition is, uh, mm. you know, the, their claim to fame is dinosaurs. Although I will say, despite one very unfortunate incident <clears throat> in 1999, Hmm. You know, involving a uh, certain band of disco space nuns. Our uh, safety record is a heck of a lot better than Jurassic Park's. Just saying. <laughs> I can imagine. Oh, yeah. But this is actually interesting. I almost said this is an interesting beast. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you came to the wrong place, Snazzy. <laughs> Puns are abundant in this show. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, this is actually the first silent film that we have covered on MIFV. So this is interesting. And Mm. it's also, I selected this as the first film to cover on this show because we typically go in chronological order here on the Film Vault. And as I said, this really paved the way for everything. Without this, we probably wouldn't have had Mm. King Kong. And without King Kong, we wouldn't have had everything else. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't quite classify this as a kaiju film in terms of genre, but it invented some of the tropes. It has all the elements you would expect. It has the monsters that surprisingly do have personalities. It has the rampage through the city at the end. It has the scientist who has a controversial idea that no one else believes that somehow directly leads to the monsters. It's got everything you would ask for. It just 
back then the term kaiju ega didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And Not I know Japan. Mm-hmm. And I know some people would argue that it's a uniquely Japanese thing, but as I said way back in episode two of the of the podcast, without King Kong, we wouldn't have it. More or less, yeah. Everything in King Kong somehow can be brought back to the lost world. And it's not like King Kong is unique in that way. Like you can also say the same for Edgar Rice Burroughs, the land that time forgot, mm-hmm. but it basically was the beginning. So all the different lost world stories that came after it and all the stories about dinosaurs and strange creatures in the modern world, it all had to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. But then again, even the lost world didn't just spring out of a vacuum. That was inspired by real people mm-hmm. going out into the jungles of South America and Africa. And some of them came back saying, we encountered these strange creatures. Like Sir Percy Fawcett sailed down the Amazon. At one point, <laughs> he reported that he had, I, I believe actually he, he might have shot it, but a snake far bigger than any known snake is supposed to be down there. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, in fact, Fawcett was one of the inspirations for Professor Challenger. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Fawcett was one of those characters from history that you wouldn't believe was real because <laughs> he lived such a life that I think Challenger would have been envious of. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is, like I said, he was one of the inspirations. There were several people that can be connected to Professor Challenger, who is probably the most famous character out of this novel. In fact, I'm actually very glad I read the novel in anticipation of this because there's a lot of comparisons to be made because there isn't as much scholarship on this film as there is for say King Kong 33. In fact, a lot of times this film is treated as just a footnote when you're talking about Kong 33, which I think is a bit unfair, but there's a lot of the scholarship I did find did talk about the source material. And so Percy Fawcett and another, a professor who I think was actually one of Arthur Conan Doyle's teachers when he was a young man, William Rutherford served as the inspirations for it. Although I also, for what I can tell, apparently Mr. Doyle put a lot of himself Mm -hmm. (laughs) into professor challenger, which is a little bit scary. Just depending on how you want to look at that. And wasn't Rutherford also an inspiration for Holmes for Sherlock? I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. But I bring that up about Fawcett because Mr. Fawcett disappeared the year this film came out because he was searching mm. for a lost city that he called, quote-unquote, Z. Just or Z a letter. for you Canadians. Yes. Well, basically the rest of the world because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the British way to say Z. <laughs> Everyone else speaks British English. <laughs> and so it was basically like an El Dorado sort of a place. And he was trying to find and he, and he disappeared. So I just think it's funny that the year the film, this film comes out, he disappeared. <laughs> and many years later, they did find that city. Really? So I don't think they ever found him. Oh. Yeah, there's a book, the lost city of Z. Oh, I think, I think they made it into a movie on Amazon prime though. I, I've heard that the that's not very good. I'm reading the Lost City of Z book, though. Ah, so. yes. And it's kind of going back and forth between the modern expedition to find where Fawcett was going and the story of Fawcett's life. Ah, that's very interesting, the, which actually kind of ties into what we're going to be talking about in the next segment because there's some people have done that with that particular story as well. But mm. just... There's a lot that we could talk about. You know, the novel, like I said, was published in 1912, which was well after 
Doyle had been publishing his Sherlock Holmes stories, which were by far the most popular thing he did, but he <laughs> he really only did it for the money <laughs> after a while. And he's gone on record as saying Professor Challenger is his favorite character that he ever created, which I can understand. And he also went on record as saying, this is kind of interesting, and I think this is something that's worth bringing up, is that that novel, and to a certain extent this film, is the type of story that could have only come out when it did because that was when basically we were filling in the entire map and there weren't a lot of unknown places anymore. Mm -hmm. It was harder. In fact, because he went on record as saying that he, there, as much as he liked science, he had issues with science and scientists because they were explaining so many things and finding so many things that he said it made it hard as a quote unquote romance writer. And I don't mean like, mm -hmm lovey-dovey sort of things, more a romance and romantic in the literary sense. It was Rob, you know, it left them less material to use because we know where everything is. There's not as much of the unknown anymore. And so he wrote the, he published this novel at a time where that was slowly coming to an end. And then this movie gets made 13 years later and even more you know, <laughs> have been discovered of the world. So, you know, that exoticism, this frontiersman, this, you know, thrill of discovery was slowly waning at this point. But even today, we ha still haven't filled in every single blank space. There's still a lot of the Amazon that's unexplored, mm -hmm. that they're still only just getting permission to go into. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but it's interesting. It's a very unique type of adventure fiction that really could have only been written in the late 19th and early 20th century. And, it, and it's very much, and I talked about this in episode two of the Film Vault, it is, King Kong is part of that same sort of literary tradition as well. And so there's a lot of connections that can be drawn between this. But, you know, we're not here to talk about King Kong. I already did that movie, so... <laughs> Oh, it'll come up again, I'm oh, sure. Oh, it's going to have to. You can't not talk about The Lost World without talking about this because of Willis O'Brien. Obi, mm -hmm. as he liked to be called, and a couple of his friends who were, he started working with them on this film, and they came back and worked with him on King Kong. Yeah, as mentioned in the info dump, the effects in this, they're the big draw for sure. Now, if you're used to Kong, you might be a little disappointed with this because they aren't nearly as refined. But that's to be expected. You know, the yeah. uh, it, it's definitely an improvement over his short films. If you look at his short films, they're even cruder by comparison. <laughs> Although there's a whole story behind that with <laughs> O'Brien getting into disputes with a past producer and all of that sort of stuff about and with another animator and how much work that they did on one of those short films. I think it was the uh, the Ghost of Slumber Mountain. And, you know, it's like how much work that they actually did because they basically didn't credit O'Brien on that film. And it's just like, it's a whole to do. It's a massive, massive yeah. to do. That's just the beginning of many bouts of bad luck that poor O'Brien had for basically the rest of his professional life. So <laughs> still, though, like as primitive as the effects look compared to even stuff that came out a decade or so later, there's the old saying, you always have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And considering, as you said, this was like one of the first, if not the first, really big special effects movies, like 
there are some people who left the theater way back then and thought we just saw real live dinosaurs on a screen. Where'd oh yeah. In fact, Doyle even played around with that. He actually did what you could argue was basically probably not the first example of viral marketing, but you would call it viral marketing. <laughs> Three years before the movie even came out, 1922, he was friends with Houdini at the time, Harry Houdini. They yeah, didn't, didn't like each other later, but, <laughs> but he showed test footage of the dinosaurs at the, Invitation of Houdini at the Society of American Magicians. And they really, the people there, okay, bunch of magicians, all right, people who know how to pull off illusions, they really thought that the dinosaurs were real. And Doyle yeah. kind of played to that a little bit. <laughs> like, imagine if those people had seen what CGI can accomplish today. I mean, their heads would explode. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. It kind of makes you wonder, like, what special effects will develop in the years to come that will make all the CGI we're used to now look crude? <laughs> Remember the holographic shark in Back to the Future 2? I'm still waiting for that. But <laughs> Yeah, we were supposed to get that a few years ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> come on, guys. You got some brilliant people working on this island. Make it happen. Anyway. <laughs> but yes. So, admittedly, the special effects are the big draw here. Now, me being a literary guy, I mean, English major, you know, mm -hmm. self-admitted English major, I was also interested in this as a literary adaptation, and which is why I made sure to read the novel before going into this. And there's a lot that could be said about how this film adapts the novel. <laughs> and that's part of why we're here. <laughs> it is part of why, of why we're here. Now, admittedly, the plot of the novel is pretty simple and straightforward. So, you know, that's there. If you're looking for that, that's here. It's got mm. the characters, but it also adds a couple of characters. It also tweaks some of the character, but it also tweaks some of the characterizations of the characters that it does use. And it eliminates a few things, probably due to budgetary and technological limitations. Like in the movie, we have one ape man. But in the novel, there is an entire tribe of them. They also, for the most part, eliminate the quote-unquote Indians. That is how they are described in the novel. A tribe of natives there. That was and, a term at the time. Yeah. A tribe of natives. And there is actually an entire chapter where they and the explorers enlist the help of the Indians. And they go to war with the ape men. That's not in the movie. <laughs> You get one ape man and not a whole tribe. Although the ape man has a chimpanzee mate, which is yeah odd. It, it's weird seeing those two <laughs> opposite each other and having like couples spats the whole way in the movie when you see them. <laughs> I know. It's a little weird. But that's, it's in keeping with basically all of the creatures in this. That was the thing that yeah. O'Brien was known for. Oh, because he had colleagues who were doing stop motion and they would treat things like the dinosaurs or anything they animated as just animals. And mm. O'Brien loved giving them little quirks to give them a little bit of personality. Mm -hmm. you know, most you know, yeah. you know, Probably the one that people would know best from this movie is the snarling brontosaurus. <laughs> ah, yes. Without, so without the lost world, Elvis Presley may not have had a career. <laughs> that is, yeah. <laughs> I can picture him what, going to a showing of this movie and thinking, hey, 
that's that cat's got something there. If I can make use of that for myself. <laughs> that's for sure. Or uh, other things like we have some triceratops and they're doing things like watching out for their young. So when mm-hmm. the Allosaurus is coming, the first thing that they do is make sure, oh, get the baby out of the way, then go stab the other one <laughs> with my horns, you know. And speaking of the Allosaurus, there's the idea that the Allosaurus just is constantly eating everything it sees. Yeah. Because <laughs> it just has to eat. <laughs> it just kills a hadrosaur, and then as soon as it sees a pteranodon flying by, it jumps up and eats oh that too. Oh my gosh! And the thing, he that it grabs the pteranodon out of midair. That was insane when we were watching it in the screen. We were like, oh my gosh, he just pulled the thing out of the sky yep. that was nuts <laughs> he is agile oh. he gets eaten by a t-rex so yeah yeah <laughs> everything is eating everything in this <laughs> qui-gon Jin was right there's always a bigger fish oh oh <laughs> you have uh, brought down the wrath of jimmy <laughs> Don't worry, I'll get in his way. Oh, oh no. Oh, you, bring up the Star Wars prequels at your own risk with my with my intrepid producer. Would you rather I brought up the Disney sequels? He's ambivalent. Ah. <laughs> Although I think I'm starting to feel the same way about the sequel trilogy that he feels about the prequels, although not quite that vitriolic so that's a (laughs) that's a discussion for another day but yes (laughs) so i would say and as was brought up in the entertaining info dump the big centerpiece in this is most definitely that volcanic eruption that Mm. is absolutely insane when i was watching those like i know that this is just a bunch of miniatures and they're just a bunch of puppets but good grief the fact that this was made by three men yeah on a gigantic table, I think it was 75 by 150 feet, all the things that they had to make sure that they were moving. Because that's the thing. Stop-motion animation, I think, is underappreciated nowadays. Animators do very similar things now on computers by doing keyframes. I get that. But we're talking about a craft where you are moving these little figurines and whatever bits of the environment are there. Yeah, outside of the Lego fandom that makes movies, I mean, who actually does stop Mo anymore? Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Leica. Oh, yeah. Uh, does, uh, does stop motion. Every couple of years. Yeah. But, you know, they're moving yeah, all they these. Use CGI, though. Yes, that is true. So we're talking about they have to animate every single frame individually. And with 35 millimeter film, which is what this was originally printed on. Mm hmm. We're talking 16 frames per second, which means they needed 960 frames of animation for just one minute. And they could average 460 frames a day, and they would be working 13 hours a day to make this happen. So the next time you're complaining about your job. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it took very intense concentration for what I was reading. Because they, if they got distracted they would lose track of what they were doing and would have to start over. Yeah, I, I, and that's I, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, literally and figuratively. So, you know, like... Not to I, mention some shots would have to incorporate non-stop motion elements a little bit later. 
So yeah, there were so many different moving parts in here, and that that lasts a good chunk of time. That segment, and again, it started a tradition too. Like in the years that followed, every dinosaur movie had to have a volcanic eruption. <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing was is that wasn't in the script. <laughs> <laughs> the eruption was not in the script. That was 100% O'Brien, who just mm-hmm. said, I'm going to put this in here. What was originally in the script, which thematically makes a little bit more sense, but O'Brien wanted his spectacle. It was originally a forest fire, and it was a forest fire actually started by, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was Roxton or Summerlee, but the, one of them was smoking. And the forest fire was started by that. So thematically, the idea of this little modern thing that is destroying this piece of untamed wildness of nature makes sense. But like I said, he's like, I want a volcano. <laughs> yeah. The volcano does play into the plot because that's how the like military expedition that just happens to be out there is drawn to the plateau. They see the smoke coming and then they happen to get there right when the expedition escapes the plateau Mm -hmm. and they're like, Hey, can you help us move this brontosaurus from the jungles of South America to London? And they're like, okay, we have nothing else to do right now. (laughs) While it's uh, sitting there (laughs) exfoliating in its mud bath that it didn't really want. That's a tough brontosaurus. I want to say he got pushed off a cliff by an allosaurus that it nearly chokes to death. I'm (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that thing would have won if it didn't get pushed off that cliff. Although it begs the question, how has this not happened before? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it has, but the Amazon is really big, you know. <laughs> this is true, but yeah. So I was amazed the poor thing survived that fall, but <laughs> landed in the mud. Uh, yep, landed in the mud. You know, and it's you know operating on movie logic, which is you know if you land in water, it doesn't kill you, even though we know it really does of hitting water from a high distance does not feel good (laughs) nope it it will kill you it's not like in the movies where it somehow softens the blow it will kill you (laughs) but if we can circle that back around to the special effects though briefly that's the shot where we see the brontosaurus breathing and Mm -hmm. that needs to be mentioned in terms of impressive special effects because that sort of thing you don't even see in special effects in the days that follow all that often. No, no. In fact, that was very much an O'Brien thing. He would put football bladders into the puppets to simulate breathing. I mean, that just that eye for detail, that attention to detail is just astonishing. And he inflated it and deflated it one frame at a time (sighs) in synchronization with moving the legs and the neck and making sure the mud around it wasn't disturbed. Like, you don't see that in King Kong. You don't see it in any Ray Harryhausen movie. Love Ray Harryhausen, but, like, that's the only instance I can ever think of where we actually see something like that with stop motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the focus was a little bit different in those later Mm -hmm. iterations. I mean, Harryhausen was a student of O'Brien, and... He took what O'Brien did and took it to an e- to an even higher level. After yeah, that, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, great stuff is great. Yeah, 
It's not uh, like they need to breathe. We, it's not like we have to see their bodies expanding and contracting to that detail. But like the fact that it was done at all, even once, and it looked that good, mm-hmm. I can understand why no one would ever want to do it again because it was probably really time consuming and tedious. It takes yeah. it takes a special kind of mind to be that laser focused and to spend that amount of time and energy working out a bunch of little things that a lot of people are just not going to notice. Hmm. Yeah, but I, I would say, you know, I mean, look at us. It's, this movie's almost a hundred years old, and here we are still talking about it. And the, it led to so many it's important things that now, followed. No, nineteen twenty-five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we still have a couple. Yeah, we still have a couple. <laughs> the book is over 100. The book is over 100. That is for sure. But, th- you know, since we're talking, you know, we're talking about that, I have, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but there's been multiple editions of this because it was kind of a lost film. It was talked about a bit in the entertaining info dump, but this was reduced down to 55 minutes because by the time Soundies, because the jazz singer, which was the first sound mm-hmm. film, that was 1927, so it's just two years later, sound films are coming in, and it's making silent films obsolete because people were just not as interested because now they have sound movies. And so they were thinking about remaking this. I think that's eventually became King Kong because, I mean, RKO actually bought <laughs> the rights to the novel just to make sure that there weren't copyright issues because <laughs> <laughs> it's so freakishly similar at points. It's not exactly the same story, but it's very similar. And film was considered very disposable at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that mindset actually carried over for a long time. Like That's why you think it's so hard to find a lot of the early Doctor Who episodes is because they didn't worry very much about preservation. Yeah, and now they're doing this weird flash animation to reconstruct some of them. Yeah, because they, the, they don't have the picture, but they have the sound which is weird. So they have the soundtrack saved, has all the dialogue and music sound effects, but they don't have the picture to go with it. So it's odd. But all of that to say, it was all discarded. They transferred it to 16 millimeter, not 35 millimeter, which was a downgrade in quality, but it made home viewing possible. Mm. So if you put it on 16 millimeter, you could take 16 millimeter and play it on a projector at some sort of a, a home setting or a school or something like that. And that was all that was available. And now, over the years, there have been people using stuff that was archived at different organizations or through private collectors. They've been they've been finding all these different editions. The Czech Republic was actually a big part of it because in the distribution route for the film, that was the last stop on there. <laughs> so they still had theirs because they were the last people to get it. And so they've been re- all these people have been reconstructing these things, sometimes one frame at a time. You know, they would find all these bits and they would stitch them all together. And the edition that is in the film vault that we watched is this new restoration, and it is beautiful. Oh hmm. my gosh. I was I, this you know, 97 year old movie looks better than a lot of modern movies that I see, or just newer movies, they're in such disrepair now that they just look terrible. This thing almost looks like it was made yesterday with this restoration. It is incredible. Like, I see this kind of style. I've seen modern films in some form or another actually emulate this a little bit, and it looks this good. Hmm. It's crazy, which is great if you're looking, if you want to actually see 
just the ridiculous amount of detail that goes into this. If you really want to get a handle for the spectacle that this was, yeah, the uh, the new Flickr Alley. It's new. It's like five years old at this point. But the Flickr Alley Blu-ray. That's the way to go with this. Now you can actually find it. It's a public domain movie, which is kind of nutty. The mm. it's a public domain movie, so you can't find it to stream on a lot of places, and you can find it on YouTube. But I do recommend getting the Flickr Alley Blu-ray because there's some is there's a great commentary and some interesting special features on there. There's a booklet with an essay on the restorations, a lot of which I was referencing in my research. So I highly recommend it. It's a little bit pricey for a public domain movie. It is strangely pricey, but I would say it's worth. Well, who's going to stop them? Yeah, basically. <laughs> At this point, but I do think for a lot of people. Particularly if you're used to modern films, it, there's a there's a lot of things in this. It's going to take some getting used to. For one thing, it's silent, so there's music, but it was music that was composed as basically an accompaniment because that's that's how movies used to be. They would, you want to talk about crazy? Back in the mm. day, mo- going to the movie theater was an entire experience. Yeah, yeah. So they would actually have a live orchestra there, and they would play background music to just go with the film sometimes it was an orchestra sometimes it was just a guy with a small little organ Mm -hmm. but it depended on what kind of picture it was Mm -hmm. and a lot of the times like it depended whether or not it was an original score composed for these movies or just some classical pieces that the guy felt fit the particular mood Mm -hmm. which is a part of how DS Ray became associated with so many horror movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's going to take a little bit of getting used to. So when you watch the new Blu-ray, there's a score that went with it, but it was composed many years after the fact to emulate the kind of music that you would hear there. It was a Robert Israel and the, there was one by Robert Israel who then updated it for the Flickr alley release and then the alloy orchestra made one as well in a previous release that was, from what I understand, was more quote-unquote modern. Mm -hmm. And just another little bit of trivia that can tie this back to King Kong, once talkies entered the picture, there were some studios that felt that audiences would not buy the idea of music coming from just the atmosphere in a movie. Like, they didn't believe that audiences wouldn't buy non-diegetic music in the film. So a lot of movies that came out in that area... If they didn't have music playing in the film somewhere, they didn't have a score at all other than maybe on a title card until King Kong came along mm-hmm. and did one of the first major scores. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, King Kong was, like I said, took a lot of what The Lost World did and then cranked it up to 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but all of that to say, so there's that that you'll have to get used to. Another thing, if you're not used to it, is the style of acting is very mm-hmm. different. And because and it was it, it's singing in the rain, actually, of the, that's a big part of singing in yeah. the rain, the musical, because it was talking. It's set at that point when actors are trying to make that transition from silent films into talkies and not all of them could do it. Yeah. Some of them were good mimes, but they weren't good actors. Yeah. So the acting in this now, this it's not this is not the most obvious example of this style of acting. Cause it, I, w- I would say you can disagree with me if you want, but I do feel like 
compared to what you would typically see in silent films, this is a little bit toned down by comparison, but a lot of times I'm thinking of things like the Charlie Chaplin comedies where you have to be over the top. Yeah. Well, Nosferatu and Phantom of the Opera would be good Mm -hmm. examples of more serious films to compare it to. And compared to those, it's sort of in that area Mm -hmm. where it is a little more subdued. There's still a lot of over the top stuff because I mean, a lot of people who went into movies back in that era also started in theater where Mm -hmm. you have to be very big and over the top so that everyone, even all the way to the back row of the house can tell what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was part of that was just natural, but Mm -hmm. the, it did have to tone it down just a little bit because like, there's no need to necessarily make a full 180 degree sweeping gesture with both of your arms when just a simple gesture from the elbow might suffice, but it's still bigger than what you might be used to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the characters and the acting are a little bit larger than life than what you would expect. Although with a story like this, it does seem a little bit fit, especially if you're professor challenger, because good Lord, professor challenger will get to the characters in a bit. But (laughs) the, but like I said, if you're not used to that style of acting, where you because a lot of modern audiences would probably look at this and think that it's just they're everyone is horribly overacting Hmm. (laughs) with big with their big expressions and their bigger gestures and they they're probably well they might actually be reciting those lines either that or they're mouthing them i don't know how typically that would all work but again maybe it's like in singing in the rain where they're actually exchanging insults towards each other (laughs) while they're doing a love scene (laughs) you don't know they could have been saying anything Uh, it's it's actually not on like a professional wrestling you know there are those points where the wrestlers will be standing in the middle of the ring they don't have microphones and they're talking Mm -hmm. to each other and we can just see their expressions and their mouths moving we don't know exactly what they're saying i saw an interview one time with Stone Cold Steve Austin, he was doing a podcast and someone asked him, he's like, what actually are you guys saying when you're doing that? And he said, well, sometimes we're trash talking each other. Sometimes we're just talking about what we're going to do after the show. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm just like, how funny is it that you're trying to maintain that expression, but you're saying completely unrelated things to each other. So there you go. It's kind of like the performances in professional wrestling. (laughs) Or rather professional wrestling is like silent film performances. Exactly. Well, I mean, there is a professional wrestler in this movie because the ape man apparently was a professional wrestler. (laughs) Luigi Bull Montana. If ever there was a pro wrestler name, Bull Montana is a pro Mm -hmm. wrestler name. And he had the physique to look less human than the others. So. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, that costume was pretty impressive. I have mm-hmm. to say that was with the, that fur suit and the big fangs, the teeth, he sold that performance oh, for yeah. sure. And that's a guy who is used to acting with his body and moving his body a certain way. Cause that's what you have to do when you're a professional wrestler. You have to tell a story through your physicality in Mm -hmm. the ring that's what makes the you know the best professional wrestlers it's not just Hmm. athletic ability it's the ability to use your athleticism to tell a story in the ring a lot of people don't uh, professional wrestling i think in some ways is gravely underappreciated for the performance art that it is yeah people are still burned by the fact that it's fake yeah yeah so are a lot of other things but (laughs) but anyway and so it seems very fitting that you know he's doing this and his performance is you know he's the ape man it's not like he has this deep involved character but 
know, it works for this particular style. It works very most well. Most of the time he's acting with an animal, like a literal animal, because his wife is a chimpanzee. <laughs> that sounds like the title of something. My wife is a chimpanzee. <laughs> Coming this fall to ABC. <laughs> My wife is a chimpanzee. Now, I remember right, the chimpanzee actually does have a name, but she goes uncredited. It is a female chimp. It's, uh, I think I have it right here. Mary. She was Mary. Oh, well, there you go. So it's, (laughs) so that means he, he had to marry, marry, marry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a complicated (laughs) relationship and that comes across in the film. (laughs) That's for sure. But then we have Jocko who actually gets credited. Yeah. Nobody liked Jocko. Jocko is cute and he provides some great comic relief. There's a few other bits of real life animal cutesy shenanigans. Like there's a couple of bear cubs that fight with each other. It's like, why is this here other than to be cutesy? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like a, another part of the writing style that Doyle was originally doing, like it was a little afterwards, but some of those old stories were also meant to sort of be kind of like travelogues. Yes. To transport people to these other places. Mm-hmm. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, there's a lot of description in Jules Verne's original stuff about where they're going and what they're seeing. Yes. Uh, far more than you would expect if you'd only seen like a film adaptation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Doyle was kind of doing that too. But mm-hmm. then he eventually got to a point where it's, okay, now dinosaurs. Yeah, basically. Well, And I do think that there are points, there's at least one point in the film that tries to replicate that a little bit. It's, it's kind of like how in the Lord of the Rings movies, they have these big sweeping vista shots of New Zealand that just screams, visit us, please. But, <laughs> but th- those are meant to visually replicate these long passages in the book where Tolkien is describing the world. And, you Mm -hmm. know, so you get that early part of the film where they're in those rafts and they're just traveling down the river in the Amazon Mm -hmm. trying to get to the plateau. And it's just showing you the scenery and showing you the animals and everything that's around them. And there are passages in the novel that are like that as well. So, it's one of those things when you're translating something from one medium to another, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that was one of the ways that they did it. Now there isn't quite as much of that once they get to the plateau. <laughs> you know, yeah. And that scene that I just described was relatively quick. You know, it also comes right on the heels of the Indiana Jones map scene, but <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which apparently was in the trailer and nobody's sure if it was actually in the original movie or not. <laughs> there are still portions of the movie that are still lost. They have stills and they have the script, obviously that mentions some things, but nobody can find the footage anymore. Like there was supposed to be a cannibals scene where the, the heroes are accosted by cannibals right after they arrive. That's lost. No one even knows if it was in the original movie, but it was in there in case the dinosaur special effects didn't work. Mm -hmm. So, and then there was a whole subplot where Challenger didn't originally go with the expedition. And then he kind of manipulates events to make it clear to them. You need me. (laughs) That's not in there. I mean, so there's. That's truer to the book too. Yes, it's truer to the book, but there are still some points in the film, even in this newest restoration unless they find some more stuff which is highly unlikely at this point there are still some things that it's still a little disjointed because there's still footage missing or there are 
transitions in the film that don't quite make sense or there are some shots that don't quite make sense because we don't have the full context anymore. Mm-hmm. Nah, that's the way it goes. But hey, the lost things are getting discovered all the time. So yeah, look, check your attics or your basements, folks. <laughs> you might have some there that you don't know about. Oh, man. How crazy would that be? <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll send Goji Kun and Brokong, uh, you know, into the vault, see if they can find anything. You know, <laughs> my, well, my goofy little mascots need something to do. <laughs> they could take their new friends Ultramite and Serena, the world's tiniest magical girl, to look it up too. You know, they <laughs> that might come in handy. But those goofy little gremlins, just mm. <laughs> uh, you know, not unlike oh, your little sidekick there. Yeah, I'm sure he's gotten into some gremlin-y shenanigans at points. Oh, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> Jimmy, keep him away from the mascots. Oh, oh yeah? Same to you, pal. Oh. You can't stop me from pushing this button. Oh, oh no. America. Nah, stop it. We already played that. Ah. <laughs> ah, all right. Anyway, so, <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about the, the effects and the dinosaurs. Like I said, the, they're the big draw. We do need to talk about, we talked about the acting. We need to talk about these characters. Hmm. This actually has, even though I, once you get to the plateau, it's a bit less story driven because the dinosaurs really do take center stage. They, they, to a certain extent, they do as well in the novel because once you get there, it's a long series of encounters with the dinosaurs. You know that travel log portion with these yeah. adventure bits. It's not necessarily this big complicated plot that's getting developed throughout. Yeah, it's a simple, straightforward. Hmm. Well, Generally it doesn't need speaking, to be that complicated. No, it doesn't need to be. When you overcomplicate the lost world, you get something like that Canadian series that was produced in 1999, where by the end they've got like UFOs and time travel and <laughs> the demonically possessed knife of Jack the Ripper. Oh my you need gosh! It's simple. Yeah, yeah. It's a wildly fun series to watch, but like if you're a purist, <laughs> it's going to drive you crazy. Yeah, it sounds ridiculously insane actually but it is yeah. great open theme too yeah yeah but anyway so we have our characters and again i do think it's interesting to see how the this film handles the characters compared to the novel and again the novel is very much a product of its time mm -hmm. and uh the Sacone, i think was the name of the guy who did the commentary was talking about how even doyle you can see ideas within Doyle's head kind of in conflict with each other in the story because he was British and, you know, the British empire was still a thing. There's that, there's a little bit of that imperialist streak in him, mm -hmm. but he was also a huge advocate for civil rights, which makes yeah. certain things about the film adaptation difficult. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But the whole setup for this, every character has very clear motivations. Malone, both in the novel and in this, he's doing this. He's a reporter. He's doing this because his fiance, although I don't know if fiance is the best way to describe their relationship, but the girl he is madly in love with <laughs> and it's not really being reciprocated. Yeah. And he wants to marry her and she says, oh, I could only marry a man who does extraordinary things, you know? And so he's like, okay, I have to go do something extraordinary. I have to go on an adventure to show her that I am a man, yeah. you know? A man who can look death in the face, basically. Yeah, yeah. 
so so again, very clear motivation. Then he finds out from the newspaper, oh, there's this crazy guy, Professor Challenger, who says he found dinosaurs. Go talk to this guy. Now, they change things from the novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how do you feel about the introductions you know, uh, in each of these? Because the scenes are in the film, but they've reversed them. In the film, yeah. we're introduced to Challenger when he's giving the lecture where everyone is mocking him you know, students and mm-hmm. academics alike. And then we have the scene where he, where Malone tries to talk to him and they get into a fist fight. <laughs> but, Go, that goes out of the house and into the street. Yeah. That's, it's nuts. But in the novel that's reversed. So what do you think yeah. of that? I kind of prefer the way the novel did it in a way. Cause like, we're going in in the novel completely as blind as Malone as to who Challenger is and whether or not these stories of him lashing out at reporters are really true. And also in the novel, which didn't make it into the film, because Malone basically lied his way into getting a meeting with Challenger by claiming he's also an academic of sorts, Challenger has this whole thing where at first he's sort of asking him questions, all these different scientific things. And Malone's (laughs) just going, yes, I agree with that. I agree with that as well. And Challenger eventually says, so I'm basically talking gibberish to you, pal, you (laughs) filthy liar. And then this fight starts. (laughs) I wish that was in the movie. It did make it into the version from the 90s where John Rhys-Davies plays Challenger. When I was was watching this, the entire time I was thinking, he's like, you know who would be a great Professor Challenger now? Be John Rhys-Davies. Then I looked, I was like, oh, he has been Challenger. Yeah. (laughs) but yeah like having it be that malone meets challenger before that big meeting that sets up the expedition i kind of preferred that Mm -hmm. but you know the movie reversed it it is what it is yeah some people would say that they prefer the order that the film does it i think i tend to agree with you omni i think i i do like the scene with the interview again going Mm -hmm. in as blind as the character and then we're introduced to, oh, yeah, we need to go on the expedition because we need to be introduced to Challenger first. And we need to understand mm-hmm. who Challenger is. Instead exactly. of just being told what he's like and who he is, we need to see Challenger. And Challenger, oh, my gosh, he lives up to his name. You <laughs> want to talk about on-the-nose name symbolism. My gosh, yeah. he is a, he challenges everything. I mean, Professor Challenger is the kind of pulp <laughs> a pulp literature style naming that almost nobody has the guts to do anymore unless you're writing a comic book so, he's, he's a, in a way his philosophy is kind of like that of charles fort one of the first major paranormal researchers because mm-hmm. he was another guy who he, he didn't necessarily cha- have a uh, doyle's point of view that science was ruining everything he had more the idea that science had basically developed its own dogma that it was not breaking from mm-hmm. so and that's what he was going up against mm-hmm. yeah but the challenger he's uh i think he's supposed to be pr- at least middle-aged he's incredibly mm-hmm. gruff he's i think someone said that he had uh, the temper of a gorilla <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's extremely he, extremely he's described he's also described as incredibly hairy a lot of the time yes beard yeah a lot of hair on his hands mm-hmm. he's so, 
I think it would be safe to describe him as hyper masculine, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> which is kind of weird because you don't normally think of an academic professor as being this hyper masculine man's man with a rifle collection and yeah. all of you know all of these sorts of things. We tend to think of them as these kind of you know out of shape, old, wisely you know uh, figures. Like Summerly, yeah, Summerly. Summerly's closer to what you would expect. And yet even Summerlee is shown to have a certain degree of robustness to him, Mm -hmm. even though he appears more like the stereotypical academic. Yes, that's for sure. And, you know, the the characterization of Summerlee is different in this compared to the novel, for Mm. sure. Uh, He's a little bit more of a buffoon in the film compared to the novel, which I think was intended to make him a bit of a foil, but in the novel, he is very outspoken in his skepticism. He's constantly yeah. telling challenger you're crazy. <laughs> you know, you don't get as much of that here because he, yeah. in the novel, Summerlee represents the establishment. You know, yep. challenger is the challenger. Summerlee is the establishment. He is what challenger is challenging. And then you have Roxton. Summerlee summarily refutes him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's here all week anyway. I hate you I'll get used to it uh, I mean you two are you know almost literally attached at the hip so <laughs> yeah I have to live with this every day <laughs> yes but anyway and then you have Roxton now he has a different title in the movie he's Sir Roxton but he's Lord Roxton mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah, in the novel and he's more of, you know, he's on the expedition because, well, in the novel, he's going on the expedition for the sake of adventure. He's a big game hunter. Yeah. He's like, oh. And he's open-minded. Yeah, open-minded, but he's like, ooh, dinosaurs. I could bag me a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, that's going to yeah. look good. Again, that kind of, you know, you know, test of manhood, masculine tradition, you know, that sort of a thing. And he's also got a good enough reputation that if he comes back and says, we saw honest to God dinosaurs, people would believe him. Yeah. Honest to Godzilla dinosaurs. Yep. 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 Mm. Yep. (laughs) I'm surrounded. (laughs) I'm here all week too. I mean, anyway, so, and then in the novel, the we also have a couple of other characters. Now the wait, we, we didn't talk about the differences with Roxton. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a major difference that is one of the additions that was made to this. Now Marion Fairfax, who I didn't realize until I started researching, was a woman because a name like Marion is a unisex name. Hmm. So it's interesting that a woman wrote this adaptation, and she threw in a little bit more character drama. And in this case, she added a couple of characters and created a love triangle by doing it. So Roxton in this is not so much going on the expedition because he wants to go hunting. It's because he likes Paula. And mm-hmm. so, and as time goes on, so does Malone. So <laughs> things get a little complicated. Yeah. Are we saving Paula for last? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we can... Uh, well, Paula doesn't have to be last, but I do want to talk about it's kind of the brontosaurus in the room to you know borrow one of the mm-hmm. you know uh, to you know borrow something from the film, and that's Zambo. Zambo oh, yeah. is very different in the film compared to the novel, and I'm not 100 percent sure 
if this was Fairfax, who at this point was already an established playwright and she had written some scripts before for films, she retired from screenwriting actually not too long after this and uh, died in 1970 and all of that fun stuff. So I don't know if this was a concession to the time or if she, for lack of a better way to put it, agreed with it. Some people think that her presentation of the women in this is sexist and I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. But Zambo is an issue. (laughs) In the novel, Zambo is a native that they meet in South America. And uh, he is described in the novel as a quote-unquote black Hercules. So he is, in every sense of the word, a strong man. He's physically strong. He's mentally strong. In fact, he actually, he's a supporting character, but he serves a very important role in the novel, which is, he is taking all of the correspondence because Malone is writing everything. The, the novel is an epistolary novel. It's mm-hmm. Malone writing letters or writing articles about his experiences, which he then gives to Zambo, who takes it to the outside world. So Zambo is their only link to the outside world because he's constantly, f- cur- uh, he's the courier. He's going back and forth between the plateau and the outside world constantly, taking all of this stuff there. He's a buffoon. (laughs) He is comic relief in this with a stereotypical accent because we didn't bring this up before because there's dialogue in this, but when you're doing a silent film, they have what are called intertitles. So basically they're like, if you're, you know, it's not, it's like subtitles, except it takes up the entire frame and it just sits there for a little bit of time for you to read them. So you know what important plot points are being discussed probably not giving you all the dialogue, but it's giving you the important bits of dialogue. Mm. So whenever Zambos pop up, it has a very thick stereotypical accent and not very flattering. And to make it even more complicated, for lack of a better way to put it, this is blackface. Well, it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Not blackface in, uh, in terms of like what we typically think of as blackface, you know, that performance version where it's very caricatured. Yeah. This is literally a white actor with very heavy makeup to make him look like a black man. And he is playing this black man as a buffoon, as the comic relief. And that is very off-putting for modern audiences. I mean, this is the sort of thing that got movies like Half Human, the Toho film, banned forever. You know, even Prophecies of Nostradamus ran into something a bit like this. And that movie eventually got locked away forever. Song of the South, the Disney film, mm-hmm. locked away forever, basically for the exact same reasons. And yet here is this film that I think might be benefiting from the fact that it's public domain. And Probably. you can still see it. And to be honest, I'm glad that you can because you can't ignore that something like this happened, that it was part of the culture at the time. It's an unfortunate part of culture. It's an mm. unfortunate, it's a, it's exemplary of an unfortunate, fortunate moment in American history, but you can't ignore the fact that it happened and you have to engage with it. I mean, even the Saccone who did the commentary, whenever Zambo was on screen, he sounded, even though he tried very hard to hide it, he sounded audibly upset at what he was seeing. And to be honest, from a modern viewer standpoint, Zambo is probably the biggest black mark against this film. So to speak. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no pun intended. Um, (laughs) No pun intended at all, I swear. (laughs) Exactly. Like, 
Yeah, no one here is saying that it is at all right that that was done, right? You're not saying no. It. I'm not saying it, Snazzy. Are you no. saying it? Never. No, I well, mean, I, I very much. That's one of the things that I really do appreciate about King Kong Thirty Three. They didn't do that. They yeah. went and found black actors to exactly. play the black characters who it, are living in the Southeast Asian Sea. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like I said on that episode, King Kong 33 is not realistic. It's mythic. So <laughs> exactly. But like you also have to look, I mean, we all agree that the blackface stuff was bad. It was acceptable in the culture though. It's the culture of back then people would have looked at that and wouldn't have seen it the same way we see it now. No. And I mean, even compared to other blackface caricatures of the time, it's still noticeable that he's being portrayed differently from everyone else, but it could have been so much worse. It could have been. Do you think it's offset by the fact that we have another, we have one of a handful of original characters to this with Austin, who's Challenger's butler, who's basically his buddy for the whole movie, and they're both buffoonish comic relief? A little bit. And even his title cards are written with a bit of a uh, cockney to yeah. them. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that justifies it. Certainly. No, it like, doesn't, but it's not as if putting them there and you can point and say, see, they're making fun of everyone equally. Like, no, it's not really that, but I don't know. I mean, it might soften the blow a little. It doesn't change what's actually there. It doesn't. It doesn't just behind it. It certainly doesn't justify it, but it's not limited. To Xander, yeah, for sure. And honestly, like, there's some of that writing in the novel as well. Like, Roxton's dialogue, actually, he's written with a bit of an accent that's noticeably not in other characters' dialogue. I seem to remember Challenger having a bit of one as well, because I think Challenger's supposed to be Scottish, which I know all bit. about, because one of my bosses yeah. is half Scottish. Well, he's not my boss anymore. He kind of got fired. <laughs> Well, I don't know if Challenger is specifically meant to be Scottish, but Malone's boss is. Yes. And Malone himself is Irish. Mm -hmm. And the Irish were not always considered white. Mm -hmm. So for the time, the book is actually very diverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But but yeah, like you can't really ignore the fact that it is there. But there's the old saying, the only thing worse than remembering something horrible is forgetting it. Yeah. So... I I think back to how like people tried so hard to get away from showing any representation of blackface whatsoever, like banning old cartoons and whatnot that by the time we got to a certain area where, sorry, I got to bring the prequels up again. We had characters like Jar Jar Binks or the (laughs) Autobot twins in Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Yeah. That were playing to those stereotypes and people were actually having debates as to whether or not that was actually accurate or fueled by racism. Sort of like, well, if we hadn't swept all of this stuff under the rug and kept it in mind, not necessarily say it's okay to do this sort of thing, but kept it in mind as an example of this is where we were. We need to be careful not to do that again. Would we have gotten Jar Jar Binks in that particular way? Who knows? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's uh, Jimmy's only seething a little bit, but you know, he, <laughs> he kept his finger off the button because he didn't want to enter. I don't think he wanted to interrupt you. You would have been a very bad producer. Otherwise, Jimmy, 
<laughs> there's steam coming off of him. Yeah, yeah, I see it often. <laughs> mm. But yeah, so it's well, one of those things. Makes sense. Yeah, like I said, you have to engage with it, and I think people are better off to engage with it than to pretend it doesn't exist or it yeah. didn't happen or anything like that. It's unfortunate, but I don't want people to refuse to see this movie because of it. There's so much more going for it. Zombo's not even in the movie all that much. No. So he's very much his role is reduced. That's the other problem is he's a, he's not doing what he did in the novel. He had an important job to do as a supporting character. We don't get that here. So that's the other unfortunate thing about this. It's he's probably, he got the worst end of the adaptation stick, unfortunately, in this. Yeah. Although, by adding a new character, it did affect the other characters around her. Not always in the best of ways. Yeah, uh, we uh, uh, Paula? May as well. Yeah, Paula, who uh, does not exist in the novel at all. Her father sort of does. But yeah. not her, which I think she was added... Honestly, probably just so they could have a woman to go on the expedition because there are no women that go on the expedition in the novel. Mm-hmm. It is a boys' club once you get to the expedition. And again, that set a tradition for all adaptations that followed. <laughs> uh huh. Now, she at least has a justifiable reason for going yeah. on the expedition because they change why they do it. It's not just to see if Challenger's telling the truth, it's also so because they're trying to find Maple White. Her father, yeah, who was a previous yeah. explorer who went to the plateau. Yeah, in the in the book, Challenger comes across him basically right as he dies mm-hmm. and brings back all of his well, goes to the plateau himself as well, but also brings back all of White's notes and drawings and whatnot, and uses that as some as part of his evidence. Mm-hmm. Here in the movie, it's believed that White is still up on the plateau, stuck trying to survive so that basically serves as what motivates the whole thing because malone says well i don't know if we can actually fund a proper expedition to go and find something that may or may not be there but if it's framed as a rescue mission for this guy my paper will fund it directly yeah basically so it was a way to justify to give a little bit more justification i think for the expedition but Mm -hmm. and paula comes because she wants to find her father but really, like I said, it's, it's to add a female character to the expedition. And then, as seems to be a little bit of a tradition when you're, you know, because they did this in that Hobbit trilogy of movies. They're like, oh, we need to put in a female character. Well, here's an original <laughs> elf. Okay. And we're going to make her do exactly what you would expect her to do. <laughs> which is, she's there to be a love interest. To oh, Malone, which actually makes sense because the guy is basically Brendan Fraser before Brendan Fraser. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I actually wrote that in my notes. So like, this guy's Brendan Fraser in, 19, in the 1920s. You know, there is an eerie seen, resemblance. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the mummy movies need I say more. Mm. But then it's Roxton has a thing for her too, and the guy looks yeah. like he's old enough to be her dad. It's, it's, it's just weird. Yeah, I think they actually made Roxton older for the movie. Because, like, <laughs> they say he is older than Malone in the book, but they don't say he's that old. Yeah. Like I, I'm thinking like late forties, early fifties here. He looks like he's in his sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Which so maybe he's just led a really hard life. But, yeah. Um, it's just, it just comes across as really weird. 
And it's especially weird because the love triangle is not established right at the beginning. At the beginning of the film, Malone is very much has his eyes on Gladys, who mm-hmm. we see Gladys. Gladys is not in the movie or the novel all that much. In the novel, she comes across as a bit more manipulative. Oh, yeah. Whereas in the movie, she's more of a ditz, which is odd. Which I, I also think they added Paula so that Malone could have a little bit of a happier ending. Because yeah. in the novel, he goes to Gladys and say, look what I just did. And she's like, oh, I, I got married to somebody else. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a clerk. Thank you. <laughs> he, I was like, literally, he's like, thank you. Goodbye. And so it's like, he yeah. just figures out right there. It's like, man, she played me. <laughs> I did. Witch. <laughs> yeah, I did all of that. And it was a ploy. At least in the movie, she actually says, oh, it was a girlish whim. And I married this other guy. <laughs> yeah, it's still not great. But then again, you look at how that affects Malone's character. Like once Malone and all the other characters are on the plateau and they're stuck up there, they're barely there five minutes before Malone looks at Paula and says, so now that we're trapped up here with no obligations to society, want to make out? <laughs> Basically, he's like, hey, we should get married. Summerly used to be a minister. I'm like, the professor was a minister? What? <laughs> it wasn't that uncommon back then. <laughs> it's just odd. I was just like, the scientist was a minister. Okay. It's just, yeah. And she's like, well, I don't know. I don't think you should, but you know, Gladys. And she's, you know, it was just like, oh my gosh, just throw it all out there, you know, which yeah. I guess kind of plays into the, a little bit into the theme, you know, of the, you know, the wildness of it. And, you know, there's no civilization out here. So we have no obligations to society, you know, to yeah. civilization. And the novel actually makes it very clear, drawing a parallel between Challenger, this big gruff professor and the chief of the ape men, which they said they look exactly like each other. <laughs> like they go out of their way to say that. So I think the idea is that Challenger is very indicative of this kind of, you know, almost a wild, almost savage, you know, like primordial mm-hmm. man in a lot of ways, you know, communicated well, yeah, sort of like King Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Like King Kong. And so I, I guess it's playing into that a little bit, but Paula doesn't necessarily do a whole lot. Some people say like, she's just there to be, you know, a damsel in distress. I didn't find her to be much of a damsel in distress more no. so than just, I don't want to say she was strictly eye candy. I mean, she contributes things to the plot, but yeah. not necessarily a lot. But then again, once you get to the plateau, none of the characters necessarily do a whole yeah. lot because the dinosaurs Ch- take over. Yeah. Challenger makes a catapult that never comes into play. And it's not in the plastic. Yeah. And it's not in the novel at all. In the novel, he tried to make a balloon, hmm. <laughs> which was funny. But, but of course, by giving Malone the happy ending with Paula, Roxton gets a crummy ending. Yeah. Like, now, even though he's way older than Paula, and you're thinking, okay, even knowing that older men and younger women back in that time, maybe it wasn't that uncommon for them to get together, it's there's still quite a significant age gap there. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I still feel kind of bad that he got screwed over like yeah, that. Yeah, well, uh, well, I mean, I can respect Roxton for kind of realizing, okay, I should let yeah. the younger guy have her. So I can respect Roxton for that. Once he yeah. realizes, like, okay, Malone, you really like this girl, so you can have her. But at the same time, there's also that moment when they're in the cave where he's like, he basically comes to Paula and says, oh, your father's dead. Here, cry on my shoulder. I mean, I'm just like, 
dude you jerk (laughs) yeah but it's all there's all kinds of stuff with this romance you can tell it wasn't in the book it wasn't in the book and a lot of the uh, the critics at the time didn't buy it like their reactions were literally why oh why would you be trying to woo a girl when you're in a you know an unknown land inhabited by you know by savage dinosaurs why would you be thinking about this well well, that's a teenage boy's dream right there being stuck in an isolated place with a hot girl and dinosaurs i mean come on you did that once jimmy of course you did hey tell me details later oh good lord Oh, a couple of chapters in your autobiography. Right. Got it. Got it. Got it. When are you going to publish that now? Yeah. Yeah. He's been talking about. never tell. Yeah. He's been talking about that autobiography for a while. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But anyway. Yeah. So I guess it kind of runs parallel to, you know, the ape man and his chimp wife and just, you know, chimp Mm. wife and all of that. It's just. It's kind of, and we see a little bit of it with the dinosaurs as well, because they have mates and they have children, and they're taking mm-hmm. care of those. So I guess yeah, uh, I don't know. It's this if, is also one of the few movies where we see more than one di- of each dinosaur species at a time. Yeah, and for what I was reading online, it's it was a little bit forward thinking with its presentation of dinosaurs because mm. the accepted idea of dinosaurs at the time was not as these roaming land dwelling animals. They thought they mostly just hung out in water, and they weren't. Yeah, doing what they're doing the here. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of forward thinking in this, but it's also mm-hmm. very much embedded in its time. Yeah. Let's be honest. Like everything, it's embedded in its time. I mean, like that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. <laughs> Even period pieces can be products of the time they're made. Yeah. Now, before we uh, move on, I do think we do need to talk in a bit more detail about... <laughs> The end of this movie, which is probably one of the most King Kong-ish things in it. Or is King Kong one of the most Lost World-ish things? <laughs> yes, for sure. I mean, other than the expedition to the, you know, to the exotic location, now this really gets into because they take the Brontosaurus back. Now, mm-hmm. that's sort of in the novel. <laughs> in the novel, oh, it was not. a baby pterodactyl. And then the baby mm-hmm. pterodactyl got loose and flew away. In this one, they take the brontosaurus that we talked about, fell off the cliff and got a mud bath. I actually wrote in my notes because when they're saying like, we need to take the thing back and they actually talk about how they're going to move it, which they don't do in King Mm -hmm. Kong. They just skip. (laughs) (laughs) No explanation. And I just wrote it. At that point, I'm just like, I feel like Challenger is turning into, or rather uh, Carl Denham was Challenger because this was, I actually wrote him. I was like, I'm just waiting for Challenger to start saying things like, we'll be millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. <laughs> you know, except. But Challenger has more integrity than that. Yeah, he has more integrity than that. In his case, he's taking the Brontosaurus back to say, see, I was right. And yeah. so we get that scene because there's a scene like that in the novel where he's giving another lecture and he's telling everybody about the expedition and they don't believe him. There's a scene actually in the first lecture where the students are saying, bring on the mastodons and bring on the mammoths. I'm like, aren't those the same things? Anyway, (laughs) correct me later in your notes, Jimmy, but, (laughs) but so, you know, he's doing it again. And then probably I'm guessing due to time and budgetary constraints, someone just sends him, Ele- you know, gets, informs him while he's giving the lecture. Oh, the brontosaurus got loose, as opposed to like in the novel where he's like, "See, baby pterodactyl," and then it got away. 
in the lecture mm-hmm. hall. So <laughs> then we get our basically, if you want to call this kaiju on a rampage scene. <laughs> that is essentially what it is. Yeah, where it's the brontosaurus is wandering around the streets of London. It's confused. It's lashing out a little bit. And it's, you know, it, it causes some property damage. You know. Destroyed some recognizable landmarks. Yep. Uh, it takes doesn't out what? Climb on top of any buildings. Yes. Well, you know, it takes out one not building. A, yeah, but it doesn't climb on top of it. It's not exactly built for that. No. Yeah, nobody yeah. keeps it down. Yeah. Brontosauruses are not built for climbing. <laughs> but but yeah. it, does, it does still fall off a famous landmark. Yeah, though. it falls off of a bridge, uh, falls into some water. And but you know it's an, it's next to the eruption sequence. I would say this is probably that. And there's one other. There's a, one of the dinosaur fights is also highly referenced. The one with the snarling brontosaurus where it fights mm-hmm. the allosaur. That's pretty well referenced a lot. And then the brontosaurus scene in the in the streets of London is it's one of the high the high marks in this because the effects mm-hmm. are uncanny. What they you know what they were doing. And, you know, trying a lot of new things that hadn't really been done before and seeing this creature in this completely alien environment and it doesn't know what it's doing and it's confused. It's a very, it's, it's, it's King Kong. Yeah. It's, it's what we did. saw in King Kong where, you know, it doesn't know what's going on. It's not meant to be here. And we also get some pretty impressive, even though it goes by very quickly, you know, they had some life-size props that they built to bring, it's not just stop motion and miniatures. They had a life-size prop of the foot that almost steps on somebody, but then you know someone shoots it and it's like ow, and then it you know goes away. And then they uh, they built a full-size tail that takes out some actors. I think there was a head too, wasn't there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there was a head as well. So, but th- those shots don't last very long, but they're there. Hmm. And then, unlike the pterodactyl. In the novel, where it's theorized that it flew off into the ocean and eventually perished. That's the theory, anyway. No one knows what happened. Other than, like, there was a police officer who said later, I saw the devil! (laughs) (laughs) There is, actually, I know of a short story written by kaiju author Matthew Denny in, in the first volume, Attack of the Kaiju. Oh, yeah, I'm in the second volume. Yeah, the... In the first volume, there's a crossover between Sherlock Holmes and the Lost World where the baby pterodactyl mutates. Oh, no. And Sherlock and Watson and Challenger have to find it. Oh, I need to read this now. So the Brontosaurus gets a happier ending because yeah. it falls off the bridge. There was actually a point in the script where we would have gotten even more precedent for kaiju stuff because they there was a machine gun battery that was being deployed to kill it. And Challenger's <laughs> like, no, don't. <laughs> so which didn't get filmed so it falls off the uh, the bridge falls into the water and then it's presumably swimming back to south america and it looks like nessie <laughs> yep. i wrote in my notes like did this thing go visit loch ness and inspire a few legends i mean <laughs> I know. nessie well, is not man. here by the way nessie is not on the island they left her in the lock because they need the <laughs> tourists they need the tourism so <laughs> But anyway, so everybody gets a happier ending in this for the most part. Still still crazy to think it can somehow traverse the entire Atlantic, but you know, they believe that sauropods were semi-aquatic back then, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of have come back around to it in some areas, but you know. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Unless that's still disputed. Yeah, who knows at this point. constantly changing its mind sometimes. Yeah, definitely. But, so yeah, again, 
without this, we wouldn't have had a lot of, <laughs> we wouldn't have had a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't say this enough. I mean, there, there's so much more that could be said about this movie. As usual, I have way more notes than I could ever use in a single discussion. So mm-hmm. Jimmy's going to have plenty of material for his blog <laughs> on this fi- uh, on this film. Uh, oh, I do want to share this. This movie was such a huge success around the world that, according to one of my articles, quote, in Paris, a donkey wandered around the streets with a placard reading, all the world has seen the lost world, except me because I am a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> which, which implies that other donkeys have seen it, except uh, for him. How very sad for him. <laughs> oh, and another quick fun fact I'll let you know about. One of the first restorations of this movie was funded by the National Endowment for the Arts and Hugh Hefner. <laughs> well. <laughs> Apparently love classic films. Make of that what you will. <laughs> and don't do any research on it with the safety turned off. Yeah, for sure. Also, another quick fun fact before we move on. This was the first in-flight movie. Hmm. It was shown on a couple of airlines in 1925. 30 years before that was popular, I might add. Makes more sense than an airport disaster movie. (laughs) That's, that is for sure. That is for sure. So like I said, there's a lot more that could be said. I'll save it for Jimmy. We have another segment to get to. Oh boy. (laughs) Kenny, I'm starting a podcast. Recruit me and co-host with Attitude. What the heck? I thought we put that teleporter in storage. Uh, Michael? Next time you want me on Kaiju Weekly, tell Jimmy to... Drop the act, Nathan. This is not the Monster Island Film Vault. Okay, fine. But what's going on? I'm having you join me on The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise. It's a podcast version of the article series I'm writing for Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Oh, interesting. We'll spend a year analyzing the Power Rangers franchise, dedicating an episode to each season and movie. Ah, I see. So we'll be doing an overview and talking about them in broad strokes. Exactly. We'll discuss Ranger teams, the villains, the theme songs, and so much more. Can we give out fun awards for stuff like the best fight scene and the craziest moments like I do on Henshin Men? You bet. More phenomenal. When do we start? We drop episodes every two weeks starting Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. You know what that means, Michael. It's Morphin' Time. Okay, Omni. So, our first toku topic of 2022 in season three is the bone wars which i know sounds like something that should be fake and it's a war more in the metaphorical sense (laughs) for sure and yet there was still a lot of destruction caused yeah and explosions oh yeah (laughs) it's also called the great dinosaur rush This was a long-standing rivalry between a pair of paleontologists. You know how there are celebrities, so to speak, in different fields of science, you know, Einstein and, you know, people like that. Well, in paleontology, what? Neil deGrasse Tyson, Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. In paleontology, they have 
Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel. The guy's name was really Othniel. <laughs> Othniel Charles Marsh. Now, Cope was with the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, and Marsh was with the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale. So, these guys were paleontologists, and they had a, shall we say, heated rivalry for much of the latter half of the 19th century. They were constantly competing with each other to discover more dinosaurs and fossils and everything, and these two guys hated each other. Now, mm. oh my gosh, did they hate each other? And they resorted to all kinds of underhanded tactics like bribery. And they would cut funding off from each other. They would slander each other in publications. They even blew up dig sites with dynamite. <laughs> and they did it just to keep the other guys from finding it. Yeah, it was insane in fact this was so wild that hbo at one point was going to make a movie based on it it was mm. going to have james gandolfini and steve carell <laughs> but then gandolfini unfortunately died so the project got shelved <laughs> well uh one of michael Crichton's posthumous publications mm -hmm. dragon's teeth covers it too mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fictionalized account but mm -hmm. still Mm -hmm. And there's, it's been referenced in a few other places. The Murdoch mysteries, I yep. think was one mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where they at least talk about it a little bit. So yeah. it, it's nuts. It's one of those things mm -hmm. where you're like, I can't believe that you can't believe that it's real, but it's real. I mean, these guys could both give professor challenger a run for their money. I mean, mm -hmm. They were professor challenger before professor challenger. <laughs> <laughs> I think Challenger might have even told them they were going way too far. <laughs> and if Professor Challenger is telling you you're going too far, you're going too far. But man, it was just it was just this war of big personalities and even in even bigger egos looking through this. I have to give a little bit of credit where credit is due on this. This topic was actually suggested to me by patron and past guest of the podcast damon noise who suggested that the he called it the paleontology wars and then i found out, oh we know it's the bone wars so shout out to damon for giving for suggesting this because my gosh does it tie into this and we'll talk about it once we get to the end here because this not singular event but all of this whole thing is in large part responsible for not only the expansion of paleontology as a science and as a practice, but also the popularity of dinosaurs, which we'll get into. Mm -hmm. So these two guys actually, at, when they first met, they were cordial colleagues. They met in Germany in 1864. They even named a few species after each other. Marsh was what there. Uh-huh. Marsh was there as a grad. Oh, why, why can't we have a Natra? You know, find a new kaiju, name it Natra. That'd be great. You know? <laughs> sure, Jimmy, we'll give you know, like Jimmy gone. There you go. We, you know, we'll give you a, we'll give you a kaiju. I would say we should give one for Snazzy, but he is a kaiju, so. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> uh, what, what would you get? Uh, would you be of like Omni, uh, Omnigon? <laughs> mm, probably. <laughs> uh, Omnidoraxis? Omnidoraxis, there you go. That sounds super official and cool, but there you go. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Marsh was there as a grad student, and Cope was sent there by his father in 1863 to study natural history and avoid being drafted into the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> 
because Europe at the time was the main focus of paleontology. It wasn't the United States. Yeah, that's where some of the first discoveries were made. Uh huh. And these two were very different. I believe, if I remember correctly, I may let me double check, but the there one of them was about a decade older, about eleven years older. Yeah, Marsh was the older of the two of them. He certainly looks older in the pictures, mm-hmm. and he has that Challenger-esque facial hair. He most definitely does. And they came from very different backgrounds. <laughs> mm. Very different backgrounds, uh, culturally even. Cope came from a wealthy Pennsylvania Quaker family, and mm. Marsh was from a comparatively poor family from upstate New York which that created some tension for them as well. Although the ironic thing is that Marge's family was kind of poor, but he had a rich uncle, which will come in a little bit later. <laughs> and I, for what I understand, Cope was known for being pugnacious and quick-tempered. Again, kind of like Professor Challenger. And Marsh mm-hmm. was more methodical and he was more introverted. But despite those personality differences, they were very quarrelsome and distrustful. Yeah. Cope was also a supporter of neo-Lamarckism, while Marsh supported Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection. So they, they were about as different from each other as you could get. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and neo-Lamarckism uh, uh, is a whole thing unto itself, let me tell you. <laughs> so this was basically inevitable, the Bone Wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> i feel like someone needs to this might have to be a hype meme for the for the episode i might have to find a picture of the two of them and just caption it let them fight <laughs> but according to one of my sources as one observer put it quote the patrician edward may have considered marsh not quite a gentleman the academic othniel probably regarded cope as not quite a professional <laughs> Ouch. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, story goes, the Bone Wars started in 1868 when Cope reconstructed a fossil from Kansas sent to him by a military doctor. And he called it the Elasmosaurus. Here's the problem. (laughs) He put the... Yep. He put the skull at the end of the tail and not the long neck because no one had ever found a dinosaur with such body proportions before. (laughs) Even though I think the plesiosaur was a little beforehand, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. But even the plesiosaur's neck isn't as long as an elasmosaur. No. And Marsh found out about this and humiliated him publicly when it was discovered. And Cope was so embarrassed, he actually tried to buy and destroy every copy of the scientific journal that he published. Just like in the movies. Yep. I wonder if that's where they got it from. Probably. A lot of paleontology enthusiasts in Hollywood, it turns Uh, out. Yeah, apparently. Uh, In actuality, the, the Bone Wars started because Marsh, because that's a little bit of a legend, so the Bone Wars started because Marsh bribed the excavators at a New Jersey dig site to send him any interesting finds instead of Cope. And that included, you brought this up a little bit during the film discussion, the Hadrosaurus, which was named after Joseph Leedy, who was a mentor for both of these men. And he also confirmed the aforementioned error that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And this, as one of my sources put it, 
It was the paleontological equivalent of the shot heard round the world. <laughs> uh, Marsh wrote about this incident, quote, when I informed Professor Cope of it, his wounded vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered, and he has since been my bitter enemy. <laughs> and then things escalated. Oh, did they? Did they? The Bone Wars intensified in the 1870s when more fossils were found in the American West thanks to excavations for the Transcontinental Railroad. A Colorado school teacher named Arthur Lakes sent sample fossils to both Marsh and Cope because he wasn't sure Marsh would be interested. That might have been a mistake. Marsh paid Lakes $100. That was a lot of money, I want to point out. That seems like chump change now. That was a bucket load of money back then. Yeah. Uh, to keep quiet, and he sent an agent to stake his claim. Cope heard about another fossil site in Colorado, which Marsh tried to get in on. So there you go. And then both of them had this bad habit of sending hasty telegrams out east describing their finds, and then those would get published because they were constantly trying to outdo each other, so it made them a little bit careless. And when you're a scientist, carelessness is a terrible idea. Hmm. <laughs> uh uh, there was even a point where Marsh was trying to get support from Chief Red Cloud of the uh, of the Sioux. He was paying him to get fossils off of his land, and he said, "In return, I'll lobby for you in D.C." Lies. <laughs> well, he did, but not really. But not that hard. <laughs> not that hard. You know, he did lobby for the Interior Department uh, with, and President Ulysses S. Grant. The old college try, as they say. Yeah, yeah, but it was more just to make a name for himself because President Grant wasn't very popular at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, they, uh, so, yeah. But then we get to Como Bluffs. You know about Como Bluffs? Mm. Go ahead. Como, yeah, Bluffs in, Como Bluffs in Wyoming. This became, for lack of a better way to put it, this became the epicenter. <laughs> of the bone wars uh two Pac union pacific railroad workers alerted marsh to some fossils there hinting that they might strike a deal with cope <laughs> and they were doing this well, with aliases yeah. too by the way because they're like they're protecting themselves marsh sent a lot of intrigue yes I can see why this would have been an this would have been an interesting movie or television show, but mm. it would have been one of those where it's just like I don't like either of these guys, so I'm just watching to see what happens because <laughs> neither one of them is the good guy here. Mm. Yeah, Marsh sent an agent to make arrangements for what included the first specimens of the. I hope I say this right, diploducus, diplo, diplo. Diplodocus. Diplodocus. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. The Allosaurus and the Stegosaurus. This got leaked to the press, and Cope tried to negotiate his own deal. <laughs> when that didn't work, he sent a prospector to steal bones from the site. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. According to one of my sources... 
quote, over the next few years, they engaged in such hijinks as deliberately destroying uncollected fossils and fossil sites so as to keep them out of each other's hands, spying on each other's excavations, bribing employees, and even stealing bones outright. According to one account, workers at the rival digs once took time out of their labors to pelt each other with stones. <laughs> yeah, this... How hasn't this been made into a movie? Like, they were only just talking about it recently? Apparently. It's like this was a secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I know the movies with actual dinosaurs in them are cooler, but I mean, this <laughs> is like... Th this could have competed with James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How funny would it be if someone wrote some... You know, some crazy new novel with like a young challenger you know, <laughs> hanging out with these guys like toward the ends of their lives or something. It would explain a lot. <laughs> it would explain a lot. I do know that there was, there was a novel written where a young Charles R. Knight who did a lot. It was a paleo artist that a lot of stuff like in this movie and in King Kong and a lot of, a lot of the popular mm -hmm. perceptions of dinosaurs is stems from his artwork. And mm -hmm. uh, I think they had a young, Charles Knight hanging out with these two guys while this is all going on in the, you know, in a novel, but, uh, cope competed with all of this by hurriedly publishing his findings in academic journals, which paleontologist Bob Backer calls taxonomic carpet bombing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then in order to ensure that, his work got recognized. He purchased the American Naturalist Journal in 1877. And then between 1879 and 1880, he published 76 academic papers, hmm. which was a small percentage of the 1,400 he would write over the course of his lifetime, which made him one of the most prolific authors in American scientific history. Hmm. Yeah, the Bone Wars got results, even if they were pretty petty. <laughs> yeah which we'll get into when we get to the end here. Mm. But it got to the point where even that journal stopped accepting papers from them because they were sick of the controversy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, quote, the controversy between the authors in question has come to be a personal one. And because the naturalist is not called upon to devote further space to its consideration, the continuance of the subject will be allowed only in the form of, of an appendix at the expense of the author. End quote. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hmm. But by the 1880s, Marsh was winning. Remember how I said he was, yeah, he came from a poor family, but he had a rich uncle, mm -hmm. George Peabody, which that's where, you know, the Yale Peabody museum gets its name. Mm -hmm. He started funding his nephew's work. <laughs> which gave him the edge. He had more people working for him. And, and at this point there was even more competition because now you had the paleontology team from Harvard who was joining this quote unquote gold rush of fossils. It was mm. nuts. But despite that, remember how he said that Cope was just publishing papers left and right. Well, while he was doing that, Marsh was mocking him at, you know, for every mistake that Cope made in his papers. <laughs> so good Lord. Can you imagine if these guys had Twitter? <laughs> Oh, no. That, that would be terrible. Oh, good Lord. The flame wars. Oh, it's man. bad enough Twitter exists with the people who are already using it. Giving it to those two? Oh, my good gosh. Lord. 
Yes, Jimmy, Flame Wars, rivaled only by your disputes or whatever with John LeMay. Sure, whatever. Glad that that got put to rest. Hmm. Now you just pick fights with the rest of my guests. But anyway, like Snazzy over here, so. Hey, what does this button do? Oh, you found the rim shot. Congratulations. Well, I was expecting more, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, you know, well, try it again later, I guess. Anyway, Marsh was determined at this point to put Cope out of business. So, in 1882, he used his uh, superior political connections and skills to become the chief paleontologist of the newly formed U.S. Geological Survey, which gave him access to all kinds of institutional support and federal funds. That would do it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of political power. And this allowed him to isolate Cope and cut him off from any government funding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Cope got so desperate, he tried to make up for the loss by getting into silver mining in New Mexico. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Couldn't even go for gold. Had to settle for silver. There you go. (laughs) But just a year after that, Cope had an opportunity for revenge. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. In 1884, Congress started investigating the U.S. Geological Survey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cope recruited some of Marsh's employees to testify against their boss because apparently he wasn't the easiest person to work for. Is anyone surprised? Well, I can't imagine. I mean, <laughs> he seems like such an amicable chap. Yeah, but conniving Marsh <laughs> tried his best to keep their grievances out of the newspapers. But then Cope up the ante. He had a journal that he kept for 20 years chronicling <laughs> all of the you know, felonies, misdemeanor, misdemeanors, and scientific errors, everything wrong that he thought this guy had done. You imagine that. You hate this guy so much. You have a dedicated journal for 20 years. He kept the receipts. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Again, let's be glad he, they weren't live now in the age of social media. Good oh, Lord. <laughs> and he gave that to a journalist at the New York Herald, and they ran sensational stories about it. Marsh did, get a, you know, did put out a rebuttal and threw similar accusations at Cope. <laughs> Because, of course, he did. Yep. And because of this and Congress's investigation, they the government slashed funding to the survey and completely eliminated the Department of Paleontology, hmm. along with Marsh's position and power and his income. <laughs> and then, as one of my sources put it, quote, as a final indignity, the Smithsonian demanded that Marsh turn over a large part of his own fossil collection, some of which had, in fact, been collected with government funds. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's quite a final nail to put in the coffin. Yep. So he ended up resigning. <laughs> yeah, paleontologists are people, too. Not yeah. very good people in some cases, like we see here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at this point, Cope had a little bit of success with the National Association of the Advancement of Science. He got appointed the head of that. But then he was beset by poor health, and he sold off portions of his fossil collection. And then he died April 12th, 1897, at age 56. Mm. 
and basically had no money left at that point. I think also Cope was a lifelong bachelor, so it's not mm-hmm. like he had any family at that point to uh, help him out. Funny thing is, nobody knows exactly what killed him. There was a mm-hmm. rumor that he that he had syphilis. <laughs> Started by Marsh, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the, they do have record of him suffering from a lot of chronic infections and problems with his bladder, his prostate, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And he was mostly self-medicated. He took... <laughs> He took belladonna to try to treat this, which is a poisonous nightshade plant. <laughs> but it was considered medicinal at the time. Yeah, a lot of things were considered medicinal back then. Yeah, for sure. But, oh, baby. Oh, baby. Oh, baby? They Yes. They could, even in his death, Cope would not let the Bone Wars end and now we're starting to get into what I can only describe as Looney Tunes logic. <laughs> like, I'm serious. I know you love Looney Tunes. I'm like, this is waiting to be a joke in Looney Tunes. One of Cope's last requests was that scientists dissect his head after he died to determine the size of his brain to make certain it was bigger than Marsh's. <laughs> so I, I, just, I read that. I just think of, you know, we, we just came off of Christmas. One of my guilty pleasure Christmas movies is Jingle All the Way. And I just keep thinking of that scene at the end with Sinbad losing his mind, wearing the supervillain costume at the parade. And he says, I have a bigger brain. <laughs> it's just, like, this, this is so weirdly childish. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, no, it, it does line up with the science of the era. It does. They thought if you had a bigger brain, that made you smarter. Uh, wisely, Marsh declined the challenge. <laughs> but well, leaving it unresolved, of course. Yeah. Uh, but the funny thing is, is, to this day, one source I looked at said Cope's unexamined head is still in storage at the University of Pennsylvania. but another source said that that's disputed (laughs) some even think that the skull the real skull was lost in the 1970s although robert backer has said that the hairline fractures on the skull and coroner's reports verified that the skull is authentic maybe it's next to walt disney's frozen head (laughs) who knows at this point that's a futurama bit waiting to happen isn't it (laughs) because all this you know the uh, heads and jars you know have Cope and Marsh's jars right next to each other and they're constantly banging into the glass trying to bite each other. (laughs) Yep. Instead, Marsh elected to have a burial less primitive (laughs) than the fossils. And so when he died in 1899, he was interred at a cemetery not far from the museum that he had given his life to, according to one of my sources. And he was 67. And uh, he died from pneumonia. And... Mm. At this point, both of these men had completely exhausted their fortunes from all of this stuff. And when Marsh died, he had a whopping $186 in his bank account. Which, which was a lot back then, but not necessarily as much as he had before. Yeah, they had squandered all yeah. of that. And he had over 80 tons of fossils in his collection, which were acquired by the, the Smithsonian. cleared them out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The American Museum of Natural History actually paid $32,000 for part of the collection. Hmm. 
I can't. Uh, I think that was for Cope's collection, though. Is so. it weird that I kind of wish both of their skeletons had been mounted in museums? <laughs> Go for the irony. I love it. I mean, he does have a point. I mean, pose them like they're in a boxing match or something. <laughs> oh, uh, you could. Oh, man. You want to get into some really terrible territory here. It'd be really funny if you uh, styled them to make it like, like one of them is scoring a nice uppercut on the chin <laughs> and to make reference to the whole <laughs> a, a, a brontosaurus thing, Put make the other guy's neck really long like Rock'em Sock'em Robots. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> Seriously, Jimmy, you're going to suggest that to the board? How about no? Ugh. My gosh, we really don't want to exhume these guys' bodies to do that. Maybe it's some like weird piece of modern art, but <laughs> but there were some good things that came out of all of these shenanigans. Much like with business, competition is good for science. Hmm. Sometimes. Well, in I this case, it was. It. Yeah. <laughs> the final tally for both of them was actually pretty impressive. Marsh discovered eighty new dinosaur species Hmm. and cope had a respectable 56 so over the course of the bone wars when they started there were only nine named species of dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and then we had 136 more by the end of this and to put that into perspective think about the last time you heard about a new dinosaur species being discovered recently Mm -hmm. now you know and there was also the benefit of the fact that these guys help train the next generation of paleontologists hmm. who came out better in spite of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, to a degree, you could argue that the bone wars just sort of devolved into more of a cold war. <laughs> Cause there's still all sorts of back and forth that happens in paleontology. Mm-hmm. It's just less destructive and less petty these days. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also, and this is why I wanted to bring it up in connection well, to the Novel and also the film was this was so publicized and people were you know following this feud for so long that it really inspired a lot of interest in dinosaurs and in paleontology, which I have almost zero doubt led to the creation of the Lost World in 1912 by Doyle, which then led to it. the movie and led to everything else because dinosaurs were popular. Yeah. And really, we have both of these guys to thank for all the dinosaurs we saw, not only in the novel, but in the film, because they discovered them. Yeah. It's kind of, they even like specifically name those specific dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, look, we threw these dinosaurs in and what they are is an afterthought or a bit of trivia for later. In, in the novel, especially, they make a point of saying creatures from the Jurassic era, Allosaurus, Stegosaurus all of these creatures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, without these guys, we wouldn't have had any of that. Yeah. So, in a weird way, the human drama was necessary for the monsters after all. Yep. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to all of you weirdo fans <laughs> who think that human characters are completely useless. I know you've done some videos discussing that, Omni, and you make some very good points, but you also are quick to say, shouldn't have to do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a topic for another day. Now, there were some mm. negative consequences as well. 
the European paleontologists were horrified <laughs> by all of this. They I'm were, sure much of the audience is too. They were disgusted and it left a very bitter distrust <laughs> with their American counterparts for years. Mm. Cope and Marsh, because they were in such a rush to outdo the other one, I mentioned that they were a bit careless. Well, sometimes they put they reassembled dinosaur skeletons haphazardly, and they were wrong, mm -hmm. and which created a hundred years of confusion about the Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus. <laughs> we yeah. were we touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, that can be directly uh, related back to Marsh. Although now there's apparently a subgroup of paleontology that's starting to question if Brontosaurus was a real species all along anyway. Yeah. Which I'm not sure how that can be possible if the Brontosaurus was the result of a literal mistake. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's Paleontology is wild. <laughs> and to be honest, I mean, they found 136 new species between the two of them. But mm -hmm. considering that they were blowing up dig sites... Yeah, how, how many, many lost? Yeah, how many of them were lost? How many more species could there have been if they hadn't been blowing things up? So there's some loss to science potentially right there because these guys were just so petty with each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. In the end, Cope left behind 13,000 specimens and Marsh had a collection that even Charles Darwin said in a personal letter was the best support for the theory of evolution. So I guess even Darwin was impressed with these guys. And I mean, take that, well, uh, take that for what it's worth. Not, their discoveries, <laughs> if not their behavior, at least. Yeah. Like I said, take it for what it's worth, but it's a wild story. Absolutely mm -hmm. wild story. My friend, about as wild as the movie we saw. <laughs> and in some ways wilder. Indeed. Well, yeah, I agree with you. Even Challenger would say, cool it. <laughs> yeah. I would have paid money to see Challenger just gruffly put both of these guys in their place. <laughs> and he would have done so physically. He would have, like, <laughs> grabbed them both by the scruff, <laughs> knocked them together, <laughs> thrown them out off the stage like rag dolls, and <laughs> then leapt after them. <laughs> Next thing you know, it's a free-for-all. Yep, basically. <laughs> and my money's on Challenger at that point. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, man. All right. Well, we've been going a little bit longer than I was expecting. <laughs> so we need to wrap things up here fairly quickly. Mm. But I do want to bring up over the last few episodes of the season we got some listener feedback that i wanted to share with everybody got a couple of emails actually from kyoe toshi the listener of every kaiju and toku podcast in existence i don't know how she does it hmm. <laughs> she's at this point she's become basically the cultural ambassador for a bunch of these podcasts because she will listen and then send some clarifications to people <laughs> on several podcasts and she sent me one as well this is actually in reference to episode 53 which was on godzilla raids again one of the things that we discussed in that episode was the jsdf and she wanted to send some clarification on 
J the JSDF. So I'll go through it here really quick. Hello, Nathan. Just heard your segment on the JSDF, and I thought I would contribute some information. From 2003 to 2021, the JSDF budget was slashed by over 17%. As you get some statistics for that. A sizable decrease. Most of this was from the time of the 2011 triple disaster to now. Give some more statistics there. This is somewhat ironic because the 2011 incidents are what caused the opinion of the Japanese concerning the JSDF to turn the corner. Their work in the disaster relief and response endeared them to the populace, and they now have a mostly positive reputation. It also temporarily had the same effect on the opinions about American forces, who were a great help during the disaster relief effort. The focus of the JSDF these days is on disaster relief, both here and in other countries, and much of the budget goes toward equipment designed for disaster relief, amphibious boats, helicopter carriers, etc., vehicles that can deliver supplies to areas where infrastructure has been damaged. And yes, dear leader to the north, and the Chinese incursions into Japanese territorial waters are big concerns as well. As far as right-wing nationalists go, even in Abe's party, 57% of the members are against tinkering with Article 9. Overall, 70% of the general population is against doing so. That's why Abe was never able to do anything with the issue. Even his own party doesn't support it. A few nutcases can make a lot of noise and get some attention, but that's about it. On the other hand, from 2003 to 2021, the U.S. defense budget has risen from $440 billion in 2003 to $934 billion in 2021, an increase of over 212%. They spend over 18 times as much as Japan on the military. And as I'm sure you know better than I, the right wing in America has become far more radicalized and sizable. This is why I always have a little laugh when I hear some Western kaiju fans talk about how Japan is becoming more militaristic and imperialistic. The hypocrisy and cultural ignorance are sad. <laughs> Just to be clear, I'm not uh, talking about you here. <laughs> You're very good at covering both sides. Well, thank you very much, Kiyoe. <laughs> I aim to do that as much as possible because I do think people need to hear both sides of the equation. Yep. That's for sure. All right, we've got the listener feedback out of the way. And now, Omni, it's time to move on to one of my favorite segments of the show. You want to join in on this, Snazzy? You'll probably have a good time. Sure. Go show! Travis Alexander! Michael Hamilton, Danny Damana, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, Bex from Redeemed Otaku, Damon Noise, The Cellcast, Eric Anderson, and then our newest patron, Ted Williams, Tofu there you go. You even got some content for the patrons, <laughs> which most of you won't hear. <laughs> There's a reason why this is becoming one of my favorite segments. <laughs> that was glorious, gentlemen. Glorious. Thank you. Good try. All righty. So now 
Like I said, season three is well underway now with this episode. And in our next one, my sub-series Godzilla Redux will be continuing. But we're going to take a little bit of a detour. We're going to be talking about 1956's Rodan. And my guest for that episode will be YouTuber Kaiju Kim. She was just on actually a few months ago to talk about Gamma 3. Now she's coming back for Rodan because Rodan, she says, was one of the few non-Godzilla kaiju films that she watched growing up. So she has a fondness for it. You can say that for a lot of us, really. Yeah, that's for sure. And then Kaiju continues next month with 1949's Mighty Joe Young, <laughs> the <laughs> spiritual sequel to Kong 33. Now, I didn't see that until actually within the last year, and I have to say, it is fantastic. I'm just, here's a preview for you. Mighty Joe Young is fantastic. I can't say that enough. And it's noteworthy because we had both Willis O'Brien and <laughs> Harryhausen working on it. So I'm looking Passing for the torch. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I am hoping to get my original core group of tourist co-hosts, Nick, Tim, Joe, and Joy to come back for that one since I mean, you launched this show all the way back in episode two talking about King Kong 1933. Mm. And now, gentlemen, we come to a segment that completes every episode of the Film Vault. Shameless self-promotion. What do you boys have? Well, I mean, we have the YouTube channel, obviously. Mm -hmm. You should all go and subscribe to that. Mm -hmm. I'll put a link in the show notes. And, of course, I am an author. I've got four books on Amazon right now. Mm -hmm. Operation Red Dragon, Daikaiju Wars Part 1. That's all one title. Occult Mafia, Emerald of Maddox City, and a short story anthology entitled Assorted Absurdities. You can get them all on Amazon, and there are more books on the way. Some of them sequels, some of them new things... But hopefully you enjoy any of them. Mm -hmm. And assorted absurdities you have described as kaiju punk. Relevant yes. to your interest, people. <laughs> yes, I am hoping that it could potentially be the start of a new genre. Kind of like cyberpunk, steampunk, and everything. Where it might help redefine what people can do with kaiju stories. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that depends on you guys, so check out the book. Mm -hmm. That's the least expensive one, if money's your concern. <laughs> I actually have uh, been meaning to purchase all of them at some point or another. They're all in a, the same universe, if I remember correctly, despite their very different genres. Oh, yes. Operation Red Dragon's a kaiju, sci-fi, kind of absurd story. Occult Mafia's more horror with a bit of noir and western. Emerald of Maddox City is an urban fantasy. And Assorted Absurdities depends on the story, but they are all set in the same universe. Mm -hmm. Well, not every story in Assorted Absurdities is set in that same universe, but some of them are. And if mm -hmm. you pay attention, you'll know which ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And people really should check out your YouTube channel. You don't just talk about Godzilla and Kaiju. You talk about a lot of things. You and I have had some mm -hmm. discussions <laughs> about some oh, of the yeah. things that you've brought up in your videos. And... Your most recent full video, other than the, you know, you made a video with your dog over Christmas, was mm -hmm. you did this video in the style of Literature Devil over Godzilla versus Kong that I just blew my mind. I'm just like, why yeah. didn't you have this right when the film came out? I would have cited this as one of my sources. Because <laughs> yeah, I've cited your videos as sources before. So It just took me a while to really piece all of it together. <laughs> 
yeah. both in terms of coming up with the thesis for that video and putting the video together itself. I really don't know how he does it. <laughs> like literature devil animates every individual word. I didn't do that. And it still took me forever. Oh man. Yeah, I bet. I bet. But like I said, check all of that out. And if you won't regret it, let me tell you, I can't recommend your content enough. So with that, like I said, we got season three well underway. So thank you once again, gentlemen, for gracing us with your presence here on Monster Island. It's great. I should hopefully be a lot safer around here because we got a new boss. So there's that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but didn't he? I mean, I thought I recognized him. He looked oddly familiar. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Winter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, wait. We should get out of here right now. Well, yeah, we probably should. We'll put in a call to Lexington. Yeah, yeah. And with that, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1 You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>